If you're listening to this, it is uh, Monday, January 8th, 2024. The mm, Wait, not the day after, but uh, 48 hours after the first round of the 2024 Supercross season that took place at uh, Anaheim Stadium, Angel Stadium, Los Angeles, Anaheim, Ducks, Angel, World Stadium, Disneyland, I don't know, whatever the fuck it's called. I have no idea that, what the stadium's called anymore, but uh, the race happened. However, this episode was recorded in October. Thus, that means I have no idea who won the race. But gonna guess that someone did, in fact, win the race. Who? I don't know. Too stacked to guess. But someone did it. And I'm sure it was either on a blue bike, a red bike, a yellow bike, maybe? I don't know. An orange bike? Uh, a blue bike? I don't know, did I say that? One of the bikes, a color one. And, um, so there you have it. That's, uh, you're welcome. Looking into the future. Uh, episode 26, failed experiment. Team Green Kawasaki, team manager Ryan Holiday. Uh, and, uh, before we get into that, though, if you haven't listened to, uh, the episode that released last week with film director Yakov Olivaria, uh, it is episode 25, which comes after episode 24, but before this episode, uh, we had a slight hiatus in, uh, episodes, just, uh, ran out of episodes and work and all that stuff got in the way, and we're just slowly, uh, recording new episodes, hence why this was recorded in October, like this, most of this batch was, but, um, if for some reason you didn't listen to that one and you came straight to this one to hear Holiday drop knowledge and wisdom and facts and some great Mitch Payton stories, um, and for some reason you also follow me and, uh, know what I do behind a video camera, you might be aware of the TLD docuseries that I was shooting, uh, throughout the summer of 2023, so last year, even though it's recording in this year, 23, but, you know, you get it. Uh, yeah, I was doing a docuseries with the race team, went to, did the whole outdoor motocross series, and then the super duper playoff thingy dingies, whatever the fuck they're called, with the race team, and uh, a bunch of stuff during the week with the team, whole deal, very Drive to Survive-esque, um, one-man band style which is not like Drive to Survive because they have a gajillion dollar budget and we had a piggy bank with $25 in it. But super proud of what we did. It really wasn't $25. I'm just joking. Just, I was being dramatic. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the week after Thanksgiving, I was brought into the TLD offices in Corona and informed that for reasonings beyond my control, uh, the whole project got shelved and will not be released. Um, I was in the middle of editing episodes one and two when I got the news that uh, it will not see the light of day. Um, super shitty deal. Again, um, reasonings uh, that are beyond my control and decisions made that uh, I had no say or input in. So, unfortunately, um, that whole project sits on the big hard drive to my right. Um, yeah, and it will not see the light of day. And I am, uh, because of that decision, um, that was made, I'm out of a job. I am an unemployed cinematographer looking for work. Um, so, uh, yeah, was definitely caught off guard by that one. Super bummed out. Um, been doing this for 15, 16 years and out of 
all my experiences that was probably the most fun i've ever had at the races that whole team is fucking incredible i will i will have that team's back for the rest of my life um this decision unfortunately was just more of an internal thing not a race team decision because uh, just where the brand is going all that stuff and how the docuseries did not necessarily aligned with the brand direction they were trying to move in is yeah super shitty deal i'm very sad thank god i have a therapist and i am in therapy because uh that's where i do all my crying to uh, work through my heartbreak but we'll get through it but i just wanted to give everyone an update because i've had people asking what's going on and that's the update uh it's dead however that leads me to patreon the trailer for the docuseries is uh, complete. It was the only thing we did get 100% finished and approved and signed off on and all done. And I decided in an effort to grow the podcast to start a Patreon account. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash the failed experiments, I'm going to be uploading a buttload of lost projects that never got to see the light of day that I've been a part of and also providing commentary um, and sharing stories and behind the scenes insights and whatnot of how projects got done and lighting techniques creative decisions and you know all that fun stuff so if you want to hear my voice more you can go over there um five bucks a month gonna be doing that and also there's going to be a video component to the podcast coming in i believe february um ryan marcus over at skull candy has provided me an opportunity to grow the podcast and move it into a studio at a uh location in Costa Mesa, a uh, Skull Candy creative studio space that they're opening. And part of that studio space has a podcast studio. How many times am I going to say studio? And um, going to have videos, uh, video cameras, nice audio, whole deal. And um, they have been very kind enough because I am poor and unemployed to let me use that space for free along with any other creatives that are looking for such a thing. They are not paying for this plug. This is just me saying what's going on. Uh, So the podcast is going to grow and uh, in that regard. So I've had people that have asked if I'd ever do a video component and there's your answer. It's coming February. And that video component will live on patreon.com as well. Five bucks a month. You get the whole podcast episode with the video aspects, a bunch of uh, lost video projects I've been a part of with all kinds of commentary, a bunch of other stuff I'm going to do over there um, as well. It's a way to support the podcast so we can try to grow this thing a little bit. Don't worry, though. The audio aspect will always, always, always be free. Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, and all the places that will always be free. You have my word. Um, But yeah, if you want to support, patreon.com forward slash the field experiment. And in doing so, that leads us into our guest today. Uh, I did a project with Ryan Holiday in 2021 at the Freestone Amateur National called All In for verbmoto.com and uh, the video did really well like really really well really well for uh, what is considered a long form video and not a mindless Instagram edit Uh, did very well so uh, if you want to go over to Patreon you can actually watch that All In episode while I provide a uh, audio commentary kind of talking about how that whole project got started kind of the workflow I had behind it behind the scenes stories lighting uh, explanations of how we did his interview composition all that type of stuff if that interests you 
Wow, this is a long one. I am so sorry. But um, anyways, Ryan Holiday. Rad dude. Been friends with him for quite a few years now. Um, and uh, he is very candid. Especially if you watched his all-in episode, you know this. He was very open, very bl- uh, blunt, direct. But not a dick. Just, hey, here's the facts. Here's how it is. Um, and this podcast episode today was really rad. There's all kinds of cool insights that Holiday shares from originally wanting to be a photojournalist and how he cut his teeth actually working at Racer X, um, trying to go the photojournalist route, um, which was really interesting. I had no idea. Um, so talking about that and then how that transitioned into working for the AMA and then taking over the AMA in 2008 in the uh, somewhat of a nightmare that ensued there and how he transitioned to uh, Kawasaki, where he's been for 15 years now, um, as the Team Green team manager. Team Green Kawasaki is obviously one of the biggest amateur programs in our sport, if not the biggest. Um, So if you're looking to get a ride from Team Green, this is your episode. I have an honorary ride for Team Green, I think. I might need to redo my contract with Holiday. I will call you about that, Ryan. Uh, But we get into all kinds of fun stories, a lot of stories, uh, not a lot, but some great stories that Holiday does share is about him and Mitch Payton, Um, some great stuff about the Dean Wilson slash Blake Baggett saga um, when they were trying to get a ride for Mitch, Um, a good Jordan Smith story, a really good Levi Kitchen story. Um, some great insights about working with Adam Cincerello during his amateur career and what that was like. Um, having the Lawrence brothers on his radar when they were over in Europe as kind of a woulda, coulda, shoulda, but you don't have a crystal ball, so how would you ever have known that the Lawrences were going to turn into what they did? All kinds of stuff. Um, again, Holiday was super candid and open, and, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I think um, all the hardcore motocross fans will enjoy it. And even the creatives um, that are looking to become a photographer, filmmaker, whatever. Holidays, um, early years, like I said, trying to be a photojournalist. I think there's some insights in there too. And some uh, stories of why he chose to not go that route at the end of the day. Um, what else? Um, yeah, Patreon. Yeah, whole deal. Um, guest list. Um anybody out there knows uh, Jenny Taft I know someone that's listening to this right now does she's on my wish list I really like let's just get this squashed like let's make it happen someone help me connect the dots please uh, I can't pay anything to make it happen but uh, I'll give you a nice shout out and send you a hot chocolate from Starbucks how about that but yeah Jenny Taft uh Lindsay Ray Ward, Tony Lovato, and Jessica Rose Clark are all um, wishlist guests I've reached out to via email, and no one has responded to me. So that's great, making uh, solid progress there. Uh, still, uh, would love to get Adam Cincerello on the podcast. Uh, never met him, but I just think he would be a really, really rad interview. So uh, AC is on the list. Um, and this is uh, the year of Taylor Swift. I've made a decision here. 10-year plan for the podcast. By 2034, both Taylor Swift and Kaylee Cuoco are going to be guests on this podcast. That's the 10-year plan of this podcast. If 
by 2034. Neither one of them have been on this podcast. I have failed you, and the name of this podcast is quite fitting, The Failed Experiment. Uh, so shoot for the stars. Tom DeLong. Maybe this is the year I reach out to him via text. We'll see. Um, we're on Instagram at underscore the failed experiment for a bunch of reels uh, with each guest, black and white portraits that I'm taking with each guest, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, we're on YouTube at TFE. All the reels from Instagram migrate over to um, YouTube if you don't have Instagram. Uh, I think we're on Facebook, Twitter. I think, I don't know. Um, but patreon.com forward slash the failed experiment, all kinds of fun stuff up there already. Um, yeah, all right, I'll shut the fuck up. I'm sorry, this was way long, but wanted to give everyone an update in case uh, you did not listen to episode 25. But you should, especially my creative friends, because uh, some cool stories there. Anyways, let's do this. Episode 26, Ryan Holiday, Team Green, Kawasaki manager. My friend and great storyteller. And uh, if you haven't already, go check out our all-in episode that we did. And then uh, check it out on Patreon where we, uh, well, I talk more and break down how that project came to be and the whole process behind it. All right, let's do this. Enjoy. Um, sweet. I've never done like a live, and it's not live, but like in person, not on the phone. <laughs> I've never done one either like as a guest like the couple i've done have oh, really? like been on the phone so yeah. i've never like actually been a guest on a real podcast yeah, so yeah. Then I, was like, oh, I guess i'll just fucking host one instead um, but I, you've listened to a few of these yeah yep. yeah yep. see so you, you kind of know the drill um so we'll start at the beginning kind of just work our way through <clears> and i'm excited to get into like the team green stuff and your perspective on that almost like a continuation of when we did that all in stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that shit blew up. That's good. That's cool. <laughs> I had people at Loretta's talk to me about it this year. Oh, even. Really? I mean, that's three years ago now. Yeah. 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 I had a buddy of mine, Jeff Simpson that I used to work with at verb. He texted me yesterday. He was digging up something on YouTube and he was like, dude, I just look at the views on the Ryan holiday, uh, all in that one. And that part two or combined have like 600,000 views. No way. Yes. Holy crap. And I was like, wow. That's you get a plaque for a million. Uh, I, you might actually. I've seen those things like in a like someone has a studio or whatever that they do, yeah, videos and they have like the little YouTube logo plaque for like yeah. million or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if it gets to a million, I'll get some sort of plaque. I like um, it. So, yeah, we'll start at the beginning. You, Pittsburgh boy, right? Yep. What, uh, what was it like growing up in the Pittsburgh area? Um, I don't know. Like I was actually born in Ohio, which I don't really talk about much because when you grow up in Pittsburgh, Ohio is like the enemy of the world. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was born in uh, a suburb outside of Cleveland called Painesville. My dad had a business there and uh, actually it was on the same street as Weisco Pistons okay. and Cometic Gasket, Industrial Park Boulevard in Menor, Ohio. But, uh, yeah, I, we only lived there till I think I was three or four years old and then went to Pittsburgh and yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh all the way through, well, basically until I went to college, but yeah, Pittsburgh was, is home for always been home to me. Uh, I love it there. I'd probably go back there in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, I, I grew up like just outside the city, just a suburban neighborhood just outside of downtown and, um, yeah, you, you grow up as a Yinzer. You're into Pittsburgh sports, Pirates, you know, Penguins, Steelers, the whole thing. And um, 
racing was really popular in that area. Like oh, okay. motocross was a big deal because you had what was known as district five, AMA district five was Southwestern Pennsylvania and like that fringe part of West Virginia, Morgantown. Mm-hmm. So obviously with Morgantown was Coombs family, racer X racer productions wasn't even racer X at the time. Um, but yeah, racer productions and all their events. So okay. high point steel city, uh, Jeff Cernick's track, pleasure Valley. Those were all the local tracks. Like I, I grew up, you know, I'm an hour, hour and a half tops from all of those tracks. So mm-hmm. racing was really popular in that area. So that was always, uh, that's what you did every weekend. You just went and raced during the season. What was like your first memory of seeing a dirt bike or on TV or going to a race or, uh, for me, I started, so we went on a family vacation. I I've probably one of two family vacations we ever did my whole life. Uh, I probably was four years old at the time. We went to ocean city, Maryland, I believe. And they had, I, I it's crazy. I remember the, the setup there pretty clear, like probably my earliest memory I have in my life is, is being there. And they had this little, I don't call it a rodeo ring, but like, you know, little hay bale circle track thing set up where you could ride a quad. Mm-hmm. It was like this little peewee 50 CC quad thing. And I know, I know my dad has a picture of it somewhere in the house, but, uh, of like me doing it that day. And I rode a, uh, this little quad around the circle there. And I was like, yep, I want to this, I want to do this. Like, this is awesome. I mean, it probably went two mile an hour. Like yeah. there was no thrill factor in it. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, this is cool. Yeah. And then I, I mean, I remember soon, very soon after, um, going home and, and we went to bonds, Yamaha, um, just outside of Pittsburgh, Ronnie bond. He was a like big time ISDE medalist guy back in the day and mm-hmm. got a Yamaha Weisinger quad 50 one that looked like the pickup truck. Okay. <laughs> if you remember that, they had a red one and a blue one. Okay. I got the red one. And then, uh, my dad went down to Honda house, which was just down the road. He got, uh, some Honda ATV thing. And then like we, we would ride together in these, I don't want to call it the Hills, but not so much trail riding. They're just like dumps. Like you'd call them the dump back there. Okay. Like they were just like these areas of land where people would just kind of congregate to go ride and, you know, you're doing hill climbs and just I don't know, goofing off on bikes and quads. And that's, that's how I started into riding, I guess you would say. And then I feel like like pretty quickly, like by six, I was racing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like okay. just going to those local races, I, I probably only did it for like a year, rode the, the four wheeler. So yeah, I was quad guy. Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, after that got on a 50 and I mean, took off from there. Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty quick. I feel like looking back from the time that I ever like got on one for the first time, like rode something to like being into racing. And then once it was into racing, like you're just every weekend, like I said, like you're just going to the races every weekend. Yeah. And was, was there a point for you where it was like, yeah, let's turn this into like, you know, the dream of school race, supercross and motocross or not so much. No, for me, truthfully. And, and, and again, it's like the honest truth. I never had the desire to like be a, a professional racer or anything like that. That wasn't ever my goal. I always told my parents, like I was going to quit when I was on off of mini bikes. Cause like big oh. bikes were scary to me. Okay. And like, I, I did well, you know, I went to Loretta's on fifties, 65s, 85s. Like, you know, that was the only big race I ever did. Like I never, 
we just were local. We would race locally and and do Loretta's every year and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some other regionally bigger events or something, but yeah, you know, we weren't like chasing the amateur national crap or anything like that. I I went to school full time. Like that was never an option. Like I went Mm -hmm. to school and then I raced on the weekend. Yeah. So I wasn't really riding during the week. I was just like, did what I could with what I had to work with. So, but yeah, I never, I never wanted to, yeah, like I'd never thought supercross or pro motocross or anything like that. To me, I got so, I just was passionate about like the sport and racing. Like I just loved it from the get go. And like, I remember getting in trouble as a kid in school. Like I would bring cycle news Mm -hmm. in, in elementary school for reading material Mm -hmm. And, and I remember the teachers having conference with my mom and, and they're like, you know, what we need to have him bring like real books. And, and my mom's like, you don't understand. He loves this. And cycle news is far beyond the Paw Patrol book or whatever it is that other kids are bringing in. So it was cool. She totally backed me on, on my passion, you know, cause like we were talking earlier about my own son, you know, like it's hard to find that passion like so early on in your life, something that you genuinely love. And I, and I had that, I mean, I remember from seven, eight, nine years old, like that was everything to me. So like I said, reading cycle news at school and videotaping every single race on ESPN two and waking up the next day to watch it on the tape and sitting at the foot of my parents' bed the night after the race to watch the recording, like, even if it was for five minutes before we left to go to the races Sunday morning, yeah. uh, I got to watch the first heat race of the night before yeah. on, you know, the tape. Yeah. Like I, I, anything I could do to just consume it yeah. is how I was. I remember. So on that note, like I remember in 95 when Doug Henry broke his back at Bud's Creek yep. and same thing. Like, I got that tape. Yeah. I got them all on VHS. <laughs> same. So, uh, Jeff would, he would record all of them. And then, you know, once it was time, we'd watch them. And I remember that was in the summer of 95 and like reading about it in cycle news, but like, man, I can't wait to watch the race to like see this crash. Like I hope, yeah. they, I hope they got, got the crash on TV. I remember cause Jeff cleans pools and like, I don't know why I remember this, but like going to work with him that day and just all day long, just like talking about Bud's Creek, Doug Henry, like, I hope they got the crash. Yeah. And like, getting home and hitting play on the, on the, the VCR and fucking sure enough there yep. <laughs> right next to MC, he just fucking launches it. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. No, I was, I mean, one nine hundred INF moto <laughs> yeah. in the morning, like, yeah. cause you know, it's the race is Saturday night and then we're going racing Sunday morning. So we're mm-hmm. up super early getting everything ready. And yeah. like, literally I would wake up before my parents and I'd go to the side of the bed. Oh, dad, can I call? I, I, can I, cause they had the phone. Yeah. Like, can I call, I don't want to call one hundred INF moto or one yeah. hundred pro race, whichever yep. it was always INF moto though. Okay. And like, I still vividly remember the recording and the sound of the guy's voice when you would call in and like yeah. tonight from Orlando season opener. <laughs> like, and you're like so excited to hear what happened. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm still that way. Mm-hmm. Like even with being able to instantly consume damn near every, any motorcycle race across the world. Mm -hmm. You can watch live, look at timing, whatever. But if say there's a Saturday night or a day where like I'm busy or doing family stuff and you can't sit down and watch the race or you can't watch it that night, Mm -hmm. I wait 
I no phone, no communication. Like I will wait to watch it as if it's live to me because I don't want to know what happened. I can't watch the race knowing, oh yeah, he, yeah, this guy wins, he crashes. Like I can't do that. I still am so like passionate about the, the anticipation of it or whatever you want to call it to where I just, even if it's Sunday morning still, like I didn't get to watch the race the night before. I I don't want to know what happened. Yeah. So it's like, shut the phone off. Don't go on social media. (laughs) And then like Sunday morning, wake up like, okay, I'm like, I'm ready to watch it and find out what happened now. And, and that's how I was from as long as I can remember. Yeah. We, the San, so San Diego supercross this year, um, we didn't go, we usually go to that race, but Karen had a work like a Christmas or not a Christmas, but some sort of work party thing. Um, so we went and did that And I was like, the same thing. I was like, I'm not looking at my phone, not anything. And we got home and I was like, all right, I think by the time we get home, if we time this right, it should be like ready to go on Peacock to play back. Oh, the replays are so delayed. And it was, dude, pisses we, me off. We got back at like, I don't know, 1130 and it still was not like yeah. ready to go. So I, I was like, I'm going to wait till midnight. And if it's not on by midnight, I'll just wait till the morning. Yeah. So midnight hits and sh- finally it's like there and I was at fucking midnight and now <laughs> Sunday morning I just hit play and I just sit there same thing just yeah. watch San Diego Supercross yeah that's same deal as then know. they wake up the next day they're like did you stay and watch it like fuck yeah I did yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's just yeah, she's like why I'm like because yeah like, I have to know it's funny like relating that like to your our wives you know like my wife is in you know into her work. Mm-hmm. But she'll always say, she's like, I can't imagine loving something as much as you love that. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I'm like, yeah. really? Like, I feel like people are like, there's so many people that are passionate about a hobby or what they do. You know, people that wake up at 6 a.m. to go play golf every weekend. Yeah. Like, that's what they love to do. It's mm-hmm. relaxing to them. They love the game, whatever the case may be. But like, yeah. I can't imagine like not having that passion for something. Yeah. I don't have any other hobbies. I, cause I don't have that same, there's other stuff I like to do, Yeah, but there aren't other things that I have that much genuine, like love and interest for. I don't know if Vanessa's like this with you, but Karen, I'm trying to get better at it, but she's like, I don't understand why you want to watch the race every Saturday because she's like, all you do is complain about what's wrong with the sport and this and that. And, but sure enough, Saturday night comes around yeah. and we have to watch the fucking race or watch the race that you were just at. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That one, they, they can't, no one can comprehend that. I don't understand you. You just were at this race and then you came home and watched it, yeah. ah, but it's different. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so, Oh my God. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. So this year being on that TLD project, I was at every outdoor and I would come home on Sundays and I would watch the race. Yeah. And she was like, "Why? you were just there. You saw all of it. And I was like, no, I did not see the race. Yeah. I assure you, like, I'm there. But, like, working, especially when you're behind the lens and, like, if you're working with a specific rider or a team. Yeah. That's the race you're watching. Everything yeah. in front and behind of your guy, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yep. No, it's totally different in, yeah. your, in your position. Like, what you can actually take in yeah. being there. Yeah. You know, you're so focused on doing what you have to do. That almost by the end of it, you're like, oh, that guy, that, he crashed out. Like that guy oh, didn't yeah. fit. You know, you don't yeah. even know because you can't, you really can't take in the race. Yeah. You're just taking in like the pieces of what you have to yeah. get from it. Dude, at Southwick, the, whatever the moto was at Hunter DNF, mm-hmm. I had no idea he DNF until the next day. <laughs> no clue. Cause it's like, I'm focused on my guy yeah. and like 
And sometimes like, I don't even know who won. Yeah. Like, I'd have to get online and see like who won today. Cause I don't know. Yeah. It's funny. Like people don't understand that if they're not like in that role. Yeah, no, totally. Is it similar for you? Like in your position when you have to go to the, the races, like you're just kind of on your guys and are you um, kind of looking at everyone? Yeah, I think for me, and that's why I like being there so much rather than, cause even if it's, <clears throat> you know, like a local supercross, of course it'd be super easy just to, cause for me, like, an ordinary, let's say San Diego supercross, like my job, I don't necessarily, I don't have like a, a role to be there for that particular race, let's say, Yeah, true. but I would much rather go there and take it in than watch it on TV because I can watch what I want to watch. I can watch the guys I want to watch. Like Mm -hmm. you, I just, for me, I use it for learning more than anything, you know, being there and watching, I, I try to, pay attention to, you know, anything and everything that you can, because I feel like that's something I've always been able to do is watch and take in what I see and then kind of apply it to teaching other people. Mm. Cause for me, you know, I obviously work with a lot of younger kids. So being able to teach them and educate them and use the examples of the pros, let's say, to them, I think is very helpful because it's, it's, it makes it more relatable to them Mm -hmm. to be able to say like, Hey, remember, you know, even if like I've been in the stands with kids before, like I got a bunch of photos of me, you know, sitting in the stands with kids that have rode for me over the years and you're at a supercross and being able to watch practice and be like, Hey, you know, did you see how this guy did this? Do you understand why he did this? Or Mm -hmm. when you're watching a race and kind of can like talk through, uh, like the strategy of a, a position a guy's in, you know, if he's struggling to pass a guy or, you know, whatever the case may be, try to use it as a tool to educate them because that's what they need to be doing is learning. Yeah. Cause obviously their goal is to get to that level. So for me, anything I can take in to then kind of contribute to educating them and teaching them to be a better racer, uh, I think is super valuable. So yeah. to me being there, uh, enables you to, to do that a lot rather than just watching on TV. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, backtracking. So how, like academically you said you were public school Monday through Friday racing on the weekends, educationally, how were you in school? Did you enjoy it or? Um, I mean, I don't know, like school was school. I wasn't like particularly passionate about it or bad at it. I got good grades that my, you know, my parents were, expecting me to do well. I I feel like I put in good effort and, you know, I was intelligent and did good. And, um, but yeah, kind of like circling back to, you know, not wanting to be a professional racer or something like that. I, I liked the business side of the sport and I was interested in that part of it. And truthfully, there are two things. I either wanted to be a mechanic or a, a truck driver. Like I thought being a truck okay. driver was like the sickest job ever. Okay. Cause going, you watch yeah. the guys build their bikes and you see the, <clears throat> the trucks, the box, you know, you just want to be like part of the crew and on the road and, and doing all that. But I knew school and ed, you know, that part of it was important because I wasn't shooting to be the racer. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were times I was on the fringe of like, well, man, if I got to be like the other kids that, didn't go to school and got to ride and do all the things during the week that maybe I would have a much better opportunity for 
being a better racer, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't to be like a big supercross guy or something like that, but just to be like, Oh, I could be a top 10 guy at Loretta's if I could just like get homeschooled for a year or something like that. But Mm -hmm. they were, you know, super like, no, you're, you're going to school. And for sure, thankful for that. It was the right thing for me. Um, But yeah, with that side of it, I always liked going to the rate, you know, when you'd go to Loretta's and you'd get to see the kids that you never get to see, you know, okay. I never left like my home. So you would just read about guys like Justin Bucklew, who was like, you know, mini bike God during my day. Yep. And then you get to go to Loretta's and see him. And I was like, I always liked watching those guys and being like picking people out. And mm. like, my mom has a great story of one of the first times we ever went to Loretta's. She was in the 65 class. She's like, there's man, this kid, I think he was number 80 this year or the, the year that I'm talking about. And she's like, there's kid number 80 out there. Like, Oh my God, he is so fast. He is incredible. I got to look him up in the program. It was Ivan Tedesco. He didn't win that year. He was like a top five kid in my class that year on 65s. Okay. I've told Ivan this story before. I was like, yeah, like in practice, my mom just came back and couldn't, she just talked about how fast you were. <laughs> oh Are you like, what the fuck, mom? Yeah. I mean, I was terrible. I got last that year straight up, <laughs> but she came after practice. She's like, this kid's so fast. I don't know who he is. I got to look him up. And it was yeah. Ivan. But I thought that's what I was into too, though. Like I wanted to watch yeah. and be like, oh, like. I love that guy's style or like mm-hmm. kind of pick out the kids that I thought were badass that yeah. I didn't really know about. Cause you didn't have internet access and all the video. Like yeah. now everybody's kind of so known in a way Yeah, yeah. where then it was a much bigger like discovery phase, I guess yeah. you would call it. Yeah. So that's what really interested me in like the, what I would call the business side. I always, I wanted to always be on the other side of the fence, like hmm. not the track side of the mm-hmm. fence, but, what I would call the business side of the fence. So yeah. for sure, school was important, but I also wanted to be a photographer. Okay. And I didn't want to go to school for four years and deal with like all the bullshit of you got to go for two years mm-hmm. taking, you know, economics and political science and <laughs> whatever other stuff that you do. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to dive into like what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I love the photography side of it. Um, and the journalism side of it. Mm-hmm. So because of where I lived and being around, um, you know, like the Coombs crew and those races and getting to know Davey at the time, you know, he had the racing paper, the racing paper was like yeah. the, the, uh, precursor to racer X yeah. The racing paper was just the local district five newspaper. So mm-hmm. it covered our local stuff. And then Davey would go off to, you know, cover the supercross races and, you know, all that stuff. And it would be sprinkled in the, in the newspaper, but I would get an infield pass to shoot high point steel city, like the local nationals. And okay. I was 14, 15, 16 years old at the time, just yeah. snapping photos. And then it was like, why don't you write a little story? So like would write a little thing for the newspaper and then, when it got to the, I think it became a magazine in 98. Um, I think the first year I wrote something for them was like 99 or 2000. Oh, he wow. had me do a piece about Loretta's and it was about like the upcoming generation of kids coming out of Loretta's. Okay. So I kind of always had that tie to amateur racing and, you know, yeah. that that's how I guess I got started on <clears throat> the industry side of it was 
taking photos at some of those local races and he'd published, I mean, they weren't spectacular. They weren't cubby photos by any means, but like, mm-hmm. that's something that I was super into. So originally my goal was I wanted to do like a photojournalism type career okay. in the sport. That's what I was really into was like capturing that and then writing yeah. about it. Cause to me it was, again, it was my passion and yeah. like I can write about it. And mm-hmm. I feel like I had always been a pretty good writer mm-hmm. and then couple that with you're just writing about dirt bikes. Like how hard could it be? Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. anything that you're passionate about should be easy for lack of a better word to say it. You yeah. know, it's not like you're asking me to write about golf, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. just, it's, it seemed natural to me. So that's where I kind of started. Um, I wouldn't call it a career at that point, but that's what transitioned me into like going to college and all that. Okay. So what'd you end up going to college for? So I wanted to do sports management. So I ended up going to West Virginia University, which is in Morgantown. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of a last minute thing. I originally, I, I wanted to come out here to California and go to Santa Monica College. Like that was my <laughs> dream. <laughs> I, I don't know. I saw this like photo or brochure of Santa Monica College. And I'm like, that place is sick. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> and they had a photojournalism program and it was okay. like a two year. It was like everything I ever wanted. I was like, I want to go to California. I want to do photojournalism done like two year program. Okay. So I was like, that's what I want to do. And I was like, pretty much just got terrified of moving to California at mm. 17, 18 years old on my own. Fair. So that scrapped that idea. But yeah, I don't need, I don't even know if Santa Monica college still exists. Uh, we can but when it. I was 16 years old, 17 years old, looking at what I wanted to do, that was the spot for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why that just fucking kills me. I just remember seeing this photo of like the campus and like it probably wasn't even the campus. It was like a photo of Santa Monica beach that they're passing off as the campus. Yeah. It's still there. Santa Monica college. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think it's probably got some massive upgrades since uh, you were looking at it. Yeah. Since the late nineties. Right on the water. (laughs) See, like I saw the picture. I'm like, I want to go to that place. That place is picture sells me. This is see really kind of maybe like, yeah, totally. (laughs) But like it again, being so into the sport, it was SoCal. Yeah. You got to be in SoCal. And I begged my parents uh, for a trip to Anaheim one year, like hardcore beg. Like, I just want to go to Anaheim. I want to go to Anaheim. I I need to go to the Anaheim Supercross. Okay. So for Christmas in 90, had it been, I don't know if it was 98 or 99. I got, you know, a plane ticket to go to Anaheim for A1 with my dad and okay. came out and went to A1 and. Went to, you know, you, you do the SoCal tour. Yep. You go to Glen Helen. Mm-hmm. We went to Paris. You go to Chaparral. Mm-hmm. You go to Pro Circuit. You go to Troy Lee. Mm-hmm. Went to Bill's Pipes. Like, yep. caught a local race at Paris on a Sunday the day after A1. Okay. Like, the whole deal. And then I remember leaving. We stayed on Catella Avenue mm-hmm. um, there in Anaheim. We go to McDonald's the morning to fly home. And we're pulling out of the McDonald's drive-thru and I see the monorail go by and I go, I go, I didn't even know Disneyland was here. Like that's how oblivious I was to like yeah. anything in SoCal besides dirt bikes. That's so funny. Yeah, but it was just the dream of like, you got to be in SoCal. Yeah. That's funny. Cause yeah. And I'm stadium and Disneyland are like right there. Yeah. Yeah. Like right there. Disneyland was, I had no idea. <laughs> I knew nothing about <laughs> Disneyland even being there. That's so great. Yeah. But wow. I just was like, I have to go to California. So that goes along with like Santa Monica College. Like, well, I got to be, I got to be in SoCal. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where 
the industry is. So you've got to be there. Yeah. But I guess at the time I didn't realize how much like where I was in Pittsburgh and Morgantown there was like East coast headquarters of the industry in a way because mm-hmm. of, you know, racer X being yeah. there and like that being a pretty predominant part of the, you know, a, a really predominant part of the sport realistically. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of had a lot of access to the industry right in my backyard. Okay. So that's what led me to WVU. I was close to home. It was an hour from my house, fun school, party school, like, mm-hmm. but the opportunity to, you know, kind of continue that relationship with racer X and everybody there and, and, you know, being a part of, of that business, I guess you would say. So, um, yeah, I, I originally wanted to go there for sports management. They had a sports management program, but really convoluted process, like how you get into it. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't declare it right away, you were always waitlisted for it. And they only mm-hmm. took like a small number. So I could never like get into the program because I was always like on the back burner for it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I <clears throat> ended up doing a, a journalism major because that was my next, you know, okay. going back to the photography and journalism side. So, yeah. Um, yeah, major from the school journalism there with like a concentration in advertising. And then I minored in business. Okay. So that's what all my education was there for four years. But like I said, the first two years, you're just doing scrap work of whatever, but that's, I started kind of like interning basically at, at the magazine. Cause when I was off classes or, you know, however my schedule was, I would just go to the racer X and everything was in one spot. So you had like racer X racer productions, MX sports for the Loretta Lynn program. Like everything Mm -hmm. was pretty cool. Like these three little farm houses Mm -hmm. in Morgantown. And that's where the original place was at. And Mm -hmm. I would just go there and you know, whatever I was told to do, I would do. Yeah. So that was the beginning of kind of working my way into working there. Yeah. How, um, so when you come out here in 98, 99 for Anaheim, what was it like for you to be this East coast kid and you come to Southern California to what is arguably the biggest supercross race of the whole year yep. and like see that in front of you in person, not on a VHS. Oh, I mean, it just fueled the desire to be a part of it more than anything. Like Mm -hmm. just the whole culture of it. I mean, like there was, we went to an autograph signing the the block. It was called the block block at orange. Now the outlets, but like, I was just there the other weekend. And I think back to like, man, I I went to the no fear store here and we went Mm -hmm. to an autograph signing the night before, like just, the experience of immersing yourself in, I mean, I, I looked up anything and everything that we could go do and see mm-hmm. while we were here. I think we were only here for three, four days tops. Mm-hmm. But like I said, going to the, the, even today, the stops that you go to, people go to pro circuit, mm-hmm. they go to the tracks, they go, you know, they sneak into where the test tracks are. That's one thing we didn't do. We, we went to the Cowie track, obviously the one right there on the yeah. side of the freeway. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't know the other ones were literally right there. You I, know, I don't think anyone really did in the '90s. Like it was a pretty yeah. well kept secret. I felt like, like yeah. I had no idea other than the Cowie track. Yeah, like, exactly. You, you see it. So I remember, you know, we went by that. Like, oh, there's Cowie track, and then not knowing, yeah, you go one exit down and head up the hill, and there's seven other ones, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and yeah. you could have literally seen the whole main event in one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, now like 
it's so accessible. I mean, you're there all the time. Like yeah. just every Tom, Dick and Harry rolls up there and yeah. sits on the hillside and watches the boys ride, which is cool. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it makes it super accessible, but yeah, I just consuming like everything of like SoCal moto was just as an East coast kid. You're like, this is it. This yeah. is like the spot. Was it like one? So you guys do that trip and you go back home. Was it like going back home? You're like, fuck, I have to get back out there as quickly as possible. Or is it like, that um, was cool. I'm glad to be back home. I don't know. To be honest, like, <clears throat> like I said, I think it just fueled the desire to be a part of it mm-hmm. more than anything. And I want to say it was, <clears throat> it had to have been 2000, the year that we went to that A1, because it was, it was Ricky's rookie year. So yeah, it was 2000. Uh, and then I was graduating high school. 99 would have been his first year. Oh yeah, first no. Year. First year, 250 class was 99. Yeah. So yeah, it was 2000 though, <clears throat> um, that we that we did the Anaheim trip. And then I graduated high school in, in summer of 2000 and then went into college. Okay. So it was kind of that whole transition point of like, okay, like, you know, I got to get in the, you know, working in the industry. Like everything mm-hmm. was about just doing that. So I think at that point it was like, okay, the West Virginia thing made sense because it was close. It was close to home. Um, I mean, I was still racing at the time mm-hmm. really actively. So it really wasn't at the point of like ready to give that up quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then, you know, going to school there and again, working into working at the the magazine and, and doing the stuff there that it's like, all right, that's my best opportunity to work my way into it for the future Yeah. rather than going to Santa Monica college. <laughs> like I'm not a risk taker. Like that was a, that was a massive risk. Yeah. Like I'm way too conservative when it would come to something like that. So when yeah. the push came to shove, it was like, you ain't going to California on your own to Santa Monica college at 17, 18 years old. Like yeah. I was like, no, like, yeah. so I kind of talked, I don't feel like my parents pushed me one way or the other. I think it was just me like, okay, this is the safer yeah. path yeah, yeah. I felt like. Yeah. So it worked out. Yeah. Who knows what would have come of Santa Monica <laughs> college. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Um, uh, so like racing wise, how far did you get? Like, were you local, like intermediate local pro? Like, where'd you end up once you, uh, I mean, I, I rode three outdoor nationals. So like oh. 2000, yeah, 2000, uh, it was the last year I went to Loretta's. I rode the B class mm-hmm. and then, so then I went into college and then when you're like full time and you go to WVU, I mean, it's hardcore. You party. Were you party guy? You don't, you're I be- wasn't, but you can't so. not. Okay. Like it's just the culture. It's <laughs> it just takes you in. Yeah. Like my brother-in-law called it college without rules. It's just, it's a shit show. Okay. It's just, it's survival really. Yeah. If you can survive. Like graduating, get the degree and pretty much don't kill yourself. It was a success. I would say (laughs) it was gnarly, Okay, but the best time of my life, like so fun. Yeah. But so when you're doing that and then be like, I want to try some, ride some outdoor nationals. Like it ain't going to mix, you know, you're not at the top of your game. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah. Oh, one, I, I think I did steel city high point and uh maybe red butt or something like that i didn't qualify but like it was just like you kind of were close to that point like might as well just give it a shot yeah yeah and having two of them in your backyard 
local track you grew up riding on, like, why not just mm-hmm. go give it a whirl? And then mm-hmm. at Steel City, I pulled off in the last chance qualifier on Sunday. I was like, fucking, I'm, I'm done. Like, oh. I was just miserable. Like, yeah. I didn't want to do it. Okay. And probably the whole year I shouldn't have raced, to be honest, because okay. I was, school was fun. Like, that was my life now. Mm-hmm. And it was, you come to that crossroads of like, you're, you're not a dirt bike racer. Yeah. Stop. Like, it's okay to, to me, it was like quitting and like, I don't want to quit something, mm. but I just had to come to the realization. It was just the smart move yeah. at the time. Like yeah. you can still ride your dirt bike and have fun and do that, but it's time to like, not be serious about the racing side of it. Yeah. So yeah, that was, like I said, those, those races I did, I probably shouldn't have even done them because I was just mentally not into it Mm -hmm. and yeah that last one i just i was like i'm done and like i never raced after that i was like because when you know you know like it's you're miserable and yeah it's not enjoyable so yeah time to move on that was the same thing for me i my last race was august of 05 at rem my terrible 125 intermediate and like i hated rem just could never figure that place out and i remember just making mistake after mistake after mistake and like yelling at myself under my helmet. And I was just like, no, I'm done. Like I'm, I don't have what it takes. I knew I was like, I don't have what it takes to get to the next level. I'm fucking good with it. And I'm done. And I never, that was August 05. I've never raced again. Yeah. And I have no like interest. Yeah. I never, I I would say from that, I never had a desire to like line up on a starting gate ever. I think looking, I maybe did one, like local race in West Virginia at some point years down the road, mm-hmm. not years down the road, but like two or three years later. And that was it. But yeah, mm-hmm. never was like, man, I miss racing. Yeah. Not one bit. Mm-hmm. Cause I, again, I, I burned a year of doing it, just not enjoying it. Yeah. Which will make you really not bitter towards it, but just like, all right, you know, you're not into it anymore. Yeah. It's not where you're, focus is at in life. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas a kid, like, yeah, it was every year, like, I want to go race on the weekends. I want to mm-hmm. go to Loretta's and yeah. and that was it. That's all I cared about. Yeah. But yeah. life changes. So, yeah. Who were, I know you mentioned Tedesco, but who were some of the guys that you grew up racing with that went on to have uh, professional careers? <clears throat> uh, well, for me locally, um, Brandon Jessamine, okay. him and I are the same age. So he was probably the the most successful, I mean, won a supercross championship in 125 class, like mm-hmm. local guy, my group, I grew up racing with every single weekend. Mm-hmm. Pastrana wasn't far from there. Mm-hmm. He lived in Maryland, but he always kind of came over to that district five area and he was around there racing a lot. Mm-hmm. Travis just turned 40. So he's a year or two younger than me. Um, but yeah, he was around a lot. Brock Hepler, Gene mm-hmm. Stahl, like all those oh, East wow. coast Suzuki yeah. kids were from kind of that area. Yeah. Um, and all similar age. So, I mean, we, we'd race together every weekend, almost Travis, not so much, but like Jessamine Hepler, um, Darren Durham, a little bit younger than me. He's Pittsburgh kid from around that area. His brother, Mm -hmm. Shane, um, stall, like I said, all close in age that, you know, we raced every single weekend together. So, uh, but yeah, I, I would, Brandon was probably the Brandon and Travis, obviously the went on to be the best from that area or of my generation, I would say. Man, Gene Stoll, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yep. I remember seeing him in the Mini Warriors movies and just being like, holy fuck. Yeah. That kid had style and was fast. Oh, dude, I got Gene Stoll stories for days. 
podcast. Yeah, that's like after hours stories. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> so after you get through college and you're working at the magazine, <clears throat> um, is that kind of like your path where you, that's where you kind of think you're going to go down or did you have other ideas in mind? Um, I mean, yeah, when I started, it was, it was super magazine focused. Like, cause again, I was that photography journalism side of it and what better spot to be than racer X. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like the new, I mean, at that time kind of up, I don't want to say up and coming. I mean, it was super established from when it started, but yeah. you know, that's, the infancy of it was around that time. Um, but yeah, I, I was super into doing that. And really I, what I started doing there, I would, you're talking slides for photos. Mm-hmm. So you get your slides in from Simon and go to the light board and, you know, Dave be like, Hey, I need, you know, pick some photos for this online story or pick some photos for this story about whoever. And, you know, proofreading stuff. Uh, yeah. Picking photos, just, uh, the privateer profile stuff, like the online inter, you know, yeah. column and all that. So just kind of getting in where you fit in and and learning different things from doing that. But that eventually transitioned to where, um, you know, like I said, the MX sports and racer productions side of the business, they were all there in the same spot. And, you know, Tim Cotter and Rita, they're like, well, we could really use some help in the MX sports office. And at the time the MX sports office was like, one person. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had Cotter obviously doing his deal, but like one other person in there that was manning the phone and, you know, really doing the nuts and bolts of the daily stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we could really use some help over there. So then they, they put me doing work on that side of it. Um, with, I mean, yeah, just like manning the phone more than anything else. Just the phone rings all day long. Okay. People call in questions about rules, I was at this area qualifier, blah, you know, just a lot of bitching and complaining from customers. It's not fair to say, but you know, they went to a race, they had some bad experience with, you know, they got protested or they wanted to protest somebody or, you know, they got a three lap moto. It was muddy, you know, things that were probably out of anyone's control, but yeah, it was just like a lot of fielding stuff like that and paperwork and computer work. And just, yeah, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot of work on that side. Um, so they needed help there and that's, I got more into that side of it, uh, than the magazine pretty quickly because they were like, this is where we really need the most help. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the, the magazine side of it really, I just, I just was kind of showing up and doing stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Go do that. You know, I wasn't getting paid. It was just like a unspoken internship almost. I just yeah. came when I could be there and did whatever they wanted me to do. I mean, yeah shipped stickers to people. Like you'd get the little, uh, subscription card that comes in the magazine, the little thing that always falls out and people would mail it in because, Oh, you mail it in for a subscription and you get two free stickers. So I got all those and, you know, stuffed envelopes with stickers and mailed stickers. You for sure mailed me some stickers. Yeah. I mean, like, and I, in the old farmhouse, like there's this little desk in the kitchen right next to the kitchen sink. And that was my little work spot. Like, three foot wide table and had a computer there. And I just, you know, stuffed envelopes with stickers and, um, like Carrie Jo would come in and she'd come into the kitchen and why don't you go up road dairy mart and get, get some coffee. Like, okay. So I'd drive up to the dairy mart and get a tub of Folgers and (laughs) just 
yeah. whatever, you know, that's how it was at the time. Still good. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it was whatever you had to do to get, yeah. get your foot in the door. You know, my foot was in the door, I guess at that point, but sure. it was, I just keep coming and you know, whatever I can do, I'll do. So is uh, the, you starting to help out on the MX sports side of things, is that how that transitioned for you to go work for the AMA? Totally. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's for sure what it was. Um, Cause I think I did the MX sports thing. I would say a good two years because okay. the magazine side was probably right away from when I started as a freshman. I don't remember exactly how long <clears throat> that lasted, but then transitioned to MX sports part of it. And yeah, I mean, it got to the point where it was a pretty regular deal. And then, um, I don't know if I did one or two summers in Morgantown where I stayed in Morgantown for the summer. Mm-hmm. Cause I took some classes in the summer also. And, uh, they were in the evening because I would just go to work there all day. Mm-hmm. So I would be there in the summertime and I would go work at MX sports office during the day. And then I'd do like one or two night classes, uh, in the summertime. But <clears throat> yeah, it, cause so much of it was dealing with the, the customers and the rules and answering questions. And it, it was very AMA ish, I guess, if for lack of a better way to say it. Okay. And then, um, yeah, after doing that for two, maybe it was even three years. I don't know. Um, but as I got closer to graduating, there was a change over at the AMA where the, the job title at the time was called AMA sports manager, which was effectively like amateur motocross manager. Mm-hmm. Um, that person had left, um, and then, you know, the, the people over, you know, MX sports, they pretty much, they told the AMA like, Hey, we have this kid that we think would be super good mm-hmm. to do this. So I ended up interviewing. And when I graduated in May, I think two weeks later I was at the AMA. So, I mean, oh, wow. two weeks out of graduation, I was <clears throat> at the AMA full time at that point. What year was this? Oh, five. Okay. Yeah. Cause if I started, I ended up, I was at WV for five years. Couldn't get out in four. It's <laughs> <laughs> claws in you. <clears throat> yeah. Couldn't get out in four years. Hence the summer classes and stuff. <laughs> Not from a grade standpoint, just like getting your major done and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I think Oh five is when I graduated. And then yeah, June of Oh five, I was on my way to Ohio full time. Okay. How long were you at the AMA for? That was then three, almost three and a half years, I would say, because I left there in uh, October of 08. Okay. Is when I finished up there. So roughly three and a half years. Okay. I feel, I could be wrong, but I feel like I started because I got hired at Transworld December, January of 2008. And then 08, I did pretty much all the outdoors, but like two mm-hmm. for Transworld. And I think that's when I started to like see you around. Yeah. Like a few races. Oh, eight. So when I started at, at AMA, like I said, I was the basically amateur motocross manager. So mm-hmm. I was just doing that only, you know, going to the bigger, you know, Minios, Loretta's mm-hmm. Texas, just the big stuff and going to Loretta qualifiers here and there. And arena cross was part of it. So I went to a good amount of arena cross races kind of anything that wasn't pro racing, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in 08, going into the 08 season, 
there was, I mean, this starts like the heavy, heavy drama of AMA time oh. <clears throat> when, uh, I mean, there was always drama when I was there. It was, <laughs> it was pretty wild. It was a wild time okay. to be there. Cause going into 08, if people remember, it was the transition of they, they were selling AMA pro racing. So there was two sides. There's AMA, the membership organization, mm -hmm. and then you had AMA Pro Racing, okay. which they would call the for-profit side. So AMA Pro Racing uh, is who ran, you know, pro motocross, um, road racing, flat track, hill climb, like all those AMA Pro disciplines fell under AMA Pro Racing, whereas the amateur motocross and the rest of it, the membership side of the organization, government relations, that was all the Ohio-based okay. side of AMA. But AMA decided they were like, you know, they, they were out of the promoting business because they were kind of, not kind of, they were like in some of the disciplines, the promoter and the sanctioning body, mm -hmm. except for Supercross. It's, you know, Supercross was always promoted by Clear Channel, Feld, Live Nation, whatever yeah. name you want to call it over the years. Yeah. Um, AMA was the sanctioning body. But when you talk about <clears throat> road race, Flat track, the other disciplines, they were the promoter. They were everything mm. soup to nuts. And they were just getting so much, uh, they were getting beat up by the public uh, so bad for just the way the promotion and everything to do with the series weren't doing well, mm -hmm. for lack of a better way to describe it. So they just kind of got to the point where like, all right, we're just, we're going to sell these to groups that can operate them to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that whole transition time uh, kind of started end of 07 into 08. Okay. And there was just so much turnover and turmoil with staff and people. And it was gnarly. So um, January of 08 is when Steve Whitelock was out mm, at okay. AMA Pro. Yep. So he was the very well-known director of pro motocross and supercross racing at the time. Yep. And there was a period there where I worked under Steve. This just kind of in all like the turmoil of things changing there. So there was a year or so where like Steve was my direct boss, mm -hmm. which was like, I really like Steve. Like Steve was a very smart man. Mm -hmm. He, he just maybe wasn't the best at communicating his, ideas and visions that he wanted. Okay. Um, and he had some unpopular takes and things that happened during his time. <laughs> he did. Yeah. So he got beat up a lot. Um, but anyway, after Steve was done there early January, they had come to me and said, Hey, you know, we're going to have you take on the supercross motocross part as like the director of Supercross, motocross, ATV racing. Those were his things that he oversaw. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, but we need you to keep doing amateur motocross also. Oh my God. And I'm like, seriously? Mm -hmm. So like, I think they offered me like a $5,000 raise. Okay. And I was like, well, that's not real cool. No. <laughs> so I actually like sat out going to the first couple of supercrosses. Cause I was like, I'm not committing to do this until this makes sense to me and is fair. Mm -hmm. You can't ask me to do the job I had been doing, which was a full time, obviously job that I was buried in already. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to tack this on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it was such a tumultuous time for the company and all of that. Yeah. Um, 
but anyway, I ended up doing it because I was like, fuck it. I, whatever opportunity to put yourself in a position for the future was the way I looked at it. Like okay. it's, it's going to be hell. It's going to be messy and it's probably going to be miserable, but why not put yourself in a position to try to better yourself and advance yourself for the future? Cause I was pretty over working there at that point anyway, in okay. the, in the job I had been doing, Okay. but it was like, you know, I didn't have anything yet to move on to. So screw it, do this, see if anything comes of it, opens other doors, you know, gets you into going to the professional races and kind of putting yourself in front of the paddock for, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, so yeah, I ended up doing it and I was doing all the supercross races, all the outdoors that year, and then still doing like going to Loretta's and the big, basically if there was a weekend, I wasn't at a pro race, it was go to an amateur race. So it was, it was a super, that's gnarly. Yeah, it was rough. And then just dealing with all the, uh, I guess behind the scenes, AMA, turmoil and drama and everything that was going on. It was, it was wild. It was a wild time to be there. (laughs) How long were you in that position? Just that year. Okay. So I, uh, I actually, it was at Millville. Um, I kind of had a blowout with someone there, not an AMA person. It was someone on like the, what was known as the NPG, like the Mm -hmm. promoter side of it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I I'm done. Like, I can't do it anymore because just such a difficult time of trying to get anything to be better. You know, you, you get into this role and then the paddock jumps on you of like, here's everything that's wrong. And me, I'm you know, young at the time I was 25, 26 years old to be in that role. And you have the whole paddock breathing down your neck about what they're pissed off about and what needs fixed. And you're like, all right, yeah. Like, you're all gung ho. Yeah. Let's fix it. You know, like snap your fingers, but obviously nothing is that easy. And it was super frustrating to just be what I felt was really handcuffed just by the circumstances of the time, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a meeting with the president at the AMA one day. Uh, and he was like, look, just, we need to survive the year, like get through the year with as little drama as possible. Cause you know, kind of going back to Steve, there was so much of, you know, fuel testing and so much hardcore (laughs) drama back on the AMA during those time, you know, Oh six, Oh seven years. So from his point of view, the president was like, just like flies under the radar as you possibly can. And like, Mm -hmm. do what you need to do to do the job. But like, we got to survive the year. Like, Mm -hmm. Okay. So I tried to be super low key. And then that summer was summer of J law rolling his rental car at Freestone summer of J law and B lot Mm -hmm. fighting. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like this is not under the radar shit. (laughs) No, not at all. Quite the opposite. So like having to deal with that was probably the biggest, uh, turmoil I had to deal with like publicly, I guess you could say. Yeah. But it was kind of simple. I mean, you do the things he did and you get in trouble for it. Yeah, so we yeah, had to handle yeah. it. Yeah, it's not very nuanced. <laughs> no, exactly. It's, we can't sweep the flipped rental car under the rug. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, anyway, yeah, I had a, a blowout with someone at Millville and I was like, fuck it. I, I can't, I'm over this. I, I'm out. I gotta, I gotta make a change here. 
So at that point though, that's, you're kind of deep into the summer and you're getting ready for, uh, donations, like a lot of donations planning was going. Mm -hmm. So anyway, after middle, I came back and I said, I'm out. Like I, I don't, I'm at the end. I want to finish the year, but at the end of the year, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a plan. Like I, that was probably the riskiest thing I ever did was like, so unhappy at that moment where I was just like, I got to change this for my own good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I stayed on there through donations that year. Cause that was just something that was super cool to be a part of and have a, a big involvement in was, uh, being able to do that race. And, um, but yeah, then a couple of weeks later, I, I go to Loretta's and, my dad was there and my dad, as soon as I got to the track, I happened to see my dad really quickly. And he was like, Hey, the guys at Cali want to talk to you. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And I didn't really think much of it, but they were interested in me coming to work there. Mm, so I was like, Oh, okay. well, this will maybe work in my favor because in October I won't have a job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. How, so with this role at the AMA, I like, I guess a two-parter, like kind of explain like exactly what your role was taking on this new position and Mm -hmm. then like what the issues were you were facing that teams are pissed off with. So I guess the role, it's different at that time. Well, it's a little similar now, but like at the time, you know, Feld, still running Supercross, but you know, Feld is operating Supercross. Mm -hmm. So you're working with them well, for one, the rule book, like mm-hmm. you have a massive part in putting together the rule book. Mm-hmm. And then you had these rule committees, um, that were really just made up mostly of the team managers. Okay. So you're working with them on developing the rule book changes to be Im- implemented, um, procedural things at the races you're coordinating with Feld, um, the AMA crew. So AMA is supplying the what I'll call like the on track crew, your people that are doing tech, your people that are doing timing and scoring your flaggers, um, Mm. you know, tech inspection, just, you know, the people that you see now at the races that are wearing the the AMA shirt. Mm -hmm. So you're responsible for those people, um, and organizing those roles week in, week out, you know, the truck uh, being there every weekend and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being that liaison to Feld with things that they need and you need from them. And then motocross, really similar thing, but you're just transitioning to a different group where you're dealing with, you know, what they had, the NPG, the National Promoters Group, but you still had each individual race promoter. You know, you had the Richies at Red Bud, you got Bud Feld Camp at Glen Helen, Lorian Bud, you got Coombs for High Point, Steel City at the time, Jonathan Beasley, you know, all the different people from every different place. So, um, that, that's what was hard. Like the outdoors was super hard. And I know that's what the MPG was created for to try to like unify all the promoters because you're going from one event to the next and you're having inconsistencies in the way things are done. And so like the, my, my blow up that I had with someone at Millville was the mechanics area and the space that they were in was super, super small. Okay. And for whatever reason, this race, there was this influx of people that had to come in the mechanics area during this one, two fifty moto. And there were bikes everywhere. I don't, there had to have been a first turn crash or something. 
But the mechanics area was so packed with people because so many people had access to it. And one of the things that, for example, I was getting beat up about in my role was like, there was so much access to the track and the mechanics area and Mm -hmm. all that. (coughs) So, oh, I am. You're good. And that was something that I wanted to make better. It's like, you know, the mechanics area should just be like the essential crew. But when there's 10 gear guys and 10 goggle guys and like, it's just con it's so packed with people, it's making it difficult for the crew guys to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And it all came to a head at this one race in particular, because the mechanics area was small and there were so many bikes in there that like the crew people couldn't work on the bikes. There were people changing wheels and, you know, going to their pit carts and it was just a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I got on, you know, I went to the person responsible and I was like, like, we got to, you know, cause the team people are coming to me freaking out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Hey, like, I know, I know, but I don't, the AMA wasn't giving out those credentials and the passes and that access. Mm-hmm. So like, I didn't have much control about it. So I, you know, went to the person that was, and I was like, I, I can't do anything. Like, I can't take care of the things I want to take care of. And, there was just so much stuff like that, that, and it seems trivial, but you know, it's week in week out stuff that you're just getting hammered on about, you know, fixing and making better. And like, yeah, I want to, honestly, that was one of my big motivations in going to the AMA in the first place, because, you know, it's no secret. It always had a big reputation of being unpopular Mm -hmm. and, you know, the way the, the, the racers, the teams, the public, the fans, you know, everybody viewed it. It's like, well, you know, let's, let's turn it around. Let's make it into something that people see value in and trust and know is going to do a good job and, um, you know, respects. Mm -hmm. So that was really, you know, my big motivator in, in, Mm -hmm. in being a part of it. And, you know, I just, I feel quickly, I, I saw the writing on the wall that in that time, like, you're just, you, I was handcuffed to be able to, mm-hmm. to do that. And I didn't want to be attached to something that, uh, you know, I couldn't make better yeah. when my sole goal was to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I, and I wasn't comfortable, you know, quote, like waiting it out, yeah. hoping for the day that that comes. I just yeah. was ready for, for something else basically. I don't, and I still think that everyone feels exactly the same today about the AMAs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, truthfully, there there's some uh, like Mike Pelletier. I know has done a really good job, mm-hmm. um, and I know like from our from our company, our, our guys really like him and they respect him and and okay. they believe that he's trying to do everything he can to improve things. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that you see with the promotional groups coming together, Feld and MX Sports working together, and yeah. You know, a yeah, lot of true. that stuff is a long time coming. <laughs> long time. I yeah. mean, sh- sh- that goes back to my time there yeah. of, of trying to improve all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's light years ahead of, uh, you know, 15 years ago now at okay. this point. Okay. So it's got a, a ways to go. But I think part of the problem, too, from the public is they're not maybe as educated on it as they could be. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to get mad at them maybe of a penalty or something that they do. Mm-hmm. But like, it's all there in black and white and, and maybe something gets updated from the previous year as far as a rule book goes. But you know, if 
so-and-so jumps on a red cross flag and they get docked, you know, four positions or whatever the case may be like, Oh, it's not the same as it was last year. You're right. It wasn't, but they're just implementing what's in the rule book. Mm-hmm. Like it's now in black and white that if you do X, this is the penalty that you're going to get for it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things I just, people aren't aware mm-hmm. of. No, they're, they're just doing what is in the book. And those things don't go into the book without the input of the influencers. When I say influencers, you know, they have a, what's now known as a steering committee, a group of people that work together on determining what those rules and certain things are going to be. So it's like, okay, fine. You can be mad about whatever penalty they laid down, but just know that a, it's written there in black and white. Mm -hmm. And this is the result of the steering committee and the AMA coming together to determine what it's going to be. So, I mean, this is your Roger DeCosters and Mitch Payton's and, you know, Dave Prater and Carrie Coombs and, you know, the Mm -hmm. heavy hitters that are involved to come up with these things and then, and then implement it. So that stuff has come leap years from, uh, from where it was for sure. And yeah, it does change maybe from year to year, but it's, it's an evolution of, Hey, you know, maybe last year in the past, that wasn't quite right. We need to refine it and make it better. And and that's what they're doing. So I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot better. Okay. I feel like what stands out to me, like from this year, was I think Bud's Creek, there was that red flag in the first 250 moto, and yeah. everyone was just all up in arms about a full restart. Yeah. That was the, I mean, that's what's in the book, though. You know, yeah. like they just, they put in what was in the book. Mm-hmm. So is it right? Eh, debatable. You know, yeah. everyone will have their opinion on it. Yeah. Um, I feel like it <clears throat> probably wouldn't have been a big deal if Deegan didn't crash and the restart. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, obviously, someone, someone's going to get burned. For sure. Someone's bound to get burned <laughs> yeah. by by all means. So, yeah, there's winners and losers no matter what. Yeah. It's not like it's going to rerun and just be a carbon copy of what happened before. No. That for sure is not going to happen. So, yeah, unfortunate circumstance when it came to that. But, you know, again, they – but in uh, – right away from that happening, they implemented – I should, not implemented yet, but there will be a change in the future, you know, to address things that came up as a result of that. Okay. So that's where, you know, they're, they're on it to where, Hey, like, okay, this happened, but we see a fault or a, a shortcoming here. We need to address it and fix it. Mm-hmm. So people that were at the races, you, you were there. So mm-hmm. you probably saw how they started like leaving the gate during practice one by one, yes. pointing them down. Yep. Well, that'll be the procedure then moving forward rather than like drop the gate, send 40 dudes into the first turn. Mm-hmm. No, we're going to just point them, you know. Yep. All right. Yeah. Deegan, you were in first. Go. Who, you know, I think Shimoda was maybe in second. You know, yeah. go. Just point them down and send them out. So yeah. that's a positive change from, you know, something that uh, came up. Okay. All right. Interesting. So I like that. I think yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Loretta's Cali wants to talk to you. Was the, the position they wanted to talk to you about for the team green role or was it something different? Yeah, it was. And I had heard earlier in that summer, uh, Dave Gallon at the time, he was the, what well, the position was called motocross supervisor, uh, for team green. Mm-hmm. He was leaving. He was going to go take a job at parts unlimited. 
it was either Thor or Parts Unlimited because he kind of did both after leaving Team Green. Um, but he was leaving, <clears throat> and I actually found out about it from from a friend. Uh, Paul Parabinos had called me that summer, mm-hmm. and he goes, uh, "Hey, Gallon's leaving Cali. I want to apply for that job." He goes, "Would you write a letter of recommendation for me?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Um, so I wrote a letter of recommendation for Paul to get a job at team green Okay, this, you know, July time or whatever. And I met my, we weren't married yet, but, uh, Vanessa, she, uh, she was like, you don't want to do that job. I'm like, I don't know. And then literally like it was a week or two later is when I go to Millville, like, fuck it. I quit. <laughs> I'm like, I might need that job now. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I go to Loretta's and they talk to me and, uh, and I sat with Reed Nordine, who was the manager at the time and Dave had a meeting or an interview, I guess you would want to call it at Loretta's in 08 and shoot, I don't know, week, two weeks later, they're like, all right, it's yours. And I, and I told him, I was like, well, I committed to the AMA through October. I want to go do motocross the nations. Um, and then, yeah, I think two weeks later after donations, I was, driving to California to go work at team green and okay. I had to tell Paul, Hey, I got that job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you guys are still friends. So I assume it worked out. Yeah. He ended up, uh, it's because I was just telling this story to my boss the other day. I had my 15 year anniversary at Cali <laughs> and you said something about, do you ever think you'd still be here? I'm like, I don't know. But I told him the story of like that same exact thing. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, then that's Paul ended up going to pro circuit. Yeah. Getting a right. job at, at, uh, at pro circuit, but that was a year later because my first year at Cowie, Dean Wilson rode for me. And then when Dean graduated from team green, he went to pro circuit. Yeah. And then that's when Mitch hired Paul yeah. to, to work for Dean. Yeah. Paul went on to have a hell of a career. Yeah. As well, so. Yeah. He did great. So yeah. I guess it all worked out. It did. <laughs> so what, what, what did the role, like when you first started with team green, what did your role consist of then? So there was strictly the amateur motocross side and it was a really big program at the time. Um, the downfall of that. So I started October of 2008 and when I came in, Dave had already done his whole, the whole team for Oh nine. Okay. So like all the contracts were done, everybody was set mm-hmm. for 2009. So when I came in, like all of that was done. Okay. Um, there was one kid that I picked up after that, it was Darian Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like right around Minio's time that year. It's, he was like 10 years old at the time, came to the semi, like literally on his own, came to the semi with a resume, met me up in the lounge, like sat down, had a honest conversation with me. I looked at the resume, like this kid's like, I think he had won Loretta's that year okay. on a 65. Okay. I'm like, this kid's cool. Like he's fast. Yeah. I like him. I go back to read. I'm like, I want to help this kid. He's like, all right. So like Darian's and I was the first person that I signed. So that was my one addition (laughs) on top of like the 36 riders that Dave had already Dave, like his going away. It was like a going away party is like everybody, everyone gets a ride. Everyone gets a ride. So it was massive. (laughs) (laughs) So Oh nine was, I think we had 36 riders. Um, and it was different then than it is now as far as like the level of commitment, I guess I would call it Mm -hmm. and responsibility. But, um, yeah, you're just, you're going to the, you know, again, the big amateur races and you're just, 
you have your crew there. So we have a crew that does all like the trackside support and mm-hmm. taking care of the customers, taking care of our riders. Uh, so yeah, you're overseeing and managing your whole crew and then dealing with all the riders that are there and the families and the sponsorships for the program. And yeah, going to all those races during the year. And at the end of 09, they're like, all right, we need a 75% reduction in the program. Holy shit. So like one year in, I got a clip 75%. So we went from 36 down to like, I don't know, 12 or 15 kids the next year. Yeah. So like that was the hardest thing was like just a year into it, you're just pulling the plug on people. So that, that sucked. That was really, really hard. And, um, it was just a big shock at the time because you're coming off of 08, everything was set for 09. And then that, you know, Mm -hmm. that time is when things in the industry were just crumbling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we took it down to a really, I I think we had 12, 12 riders going into 2010. Is there anyone in that process that you had to cut that you look back on and like, fuck, I should have kept him. Um, that's a good one. The one, I mean, looking back, not knowing the circumstance, obviously that sucked was Jesse Masterpool. Okay. So Jesse was a team green rider. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, he was one of the ones that we didn't keep on Mm -hmm. going into 10 and then, yeah, he had his, I, I, yeah. I think it was 10 or 11 that he had his accident. Yeah. So that, that just, yeah, that one sucked yeah. for sure. Um, but we kind of, for 10, I would say it was a mix of, you know, keeping some of the ones that we had. And then we picked up a few also, like that's when um, we got Jason Anderson Okay, was for 2010. Okay. So that was a big one. Cause that was someone that, you know, I, obviously I thought Jason was, super good. And someone I talked to Mitch about, was like, Hey, I, I think I can get Anderson in. Yeah. And you know, I, I believe like he, he'll, he can do good enough to then earn a, earn a spot mm-hmm. on your team. So he, he was supportive of it and it's like, all right, let's give him a shot. But yeah, like my 10, 10 year was, you know, Anderson and Bogle and like we had some AC, uh, Zach Bell was like a dominant mini bike kid at the time, you know, him and his brother chase. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had, a badass group of kids, um, at that time. What? So I don't know if this was your time or not. And if you'd remember this name, Tyler Schoberg. Yeah. Schoberg was in what happened to that kid. <laughs> he was so fucking fast. Yeah. He, so yeah. Oh nine, he rode for me. And then, um, he was there in 10 okay. also. Cause he was there when we had Jason. Mm-hmm. And then I think after 10, he didn't, he, you know, he didn't get a ride. He missed Loretta's. I remember he had missed Loretta's that year. Um, I forget exactly what he did to himself, but he, he didn't get to go to Loretta's and he kind of just was like, I, I want to go do supercross. He didn't have a ride or really anything lined up. And they, they were super good, like on their own, I guess you could say like his equipment was always really good. He was well supported by his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and they was like, I just, I'm going to go race supercross. I don't want to race amateur for another year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went into trying some supercross. I think we helped him a little bit because really for me, that wasn't, you know, once you were done as an amateur, you didn't, we didn't really support yeah. guys as pros, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, so I think we floated him some help and, you know, he kind of gave it a shot on his own and then it was like, nope, that was it. Hmm. So yeah. I don't know. Some guys, it just, for whatever reason, 
didn't pan out. You know, yeah. he made some main events, I believe, but yeah, he was super fast as an amateur, won a bunch of races. He yeah. was really good at mammoth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he won for us up there in, in that 2010 year, uh, yeah. he won the pro class. Um, and then, yeah, I did, did a year of supercross, gave it a shot. And then I think it was kind of like, all right, I gave it my shot and yeah, time to move decided on. to go do something else. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I always wondered because I was like, remember him as a Team Green kid, and then that was it. Like, I don't even remember him racing Supercross at all, and then just never heard the name again. Yeah, like I said, a couple of races. I think he made a mainer here and there, and that was it. You know, it's yeah. like, all right, I did my, I gave it my shot. Yeah. Huh. So how has your, how has your role evolved from when you started to where you're at today? So the first. I guess seven years now um, was just the motocross stuff, just amateur motocross because you had the amateur motocross side. And then you had, we had an off-road supervisor who handled our off-road racing, mm. you know, GNCC works, uh, Heron hound, enduro cross, all that stuff. So, and we had ATV program, the ATV program didn't survive the, the 75% reduction. <laughs> Uh, so that, that whole thing went away. I mean, we had a full, that was in our shop too. Like our, our shop, the team green shop was the off-road race team, which was like an in-house factory off-road team. Mm -hmm. You had the ATV team, you know, they had their crew trucks, like everything. And then you had the amateur motocross side of it. So yeah, the ATV side of it, uh, got clipped. They had the off-road side. And then in third, I think 14 was the last year of the off-road program. Mm-hmm. kind of being done internally where they, they shut that whole thing down. Um, and, th- and that guy's position got eliminated too. And then in 16, I think it was the summer of 16, uh, my boss at the time, Reed Nordine, they had, they had gotten rid of him. Um, and then shuffled, shuffled internally some things around and, uh, maybe six months after that is when they made me like the manager of team green, I would say. So I was, you know, essentially responsible for any and all team green activity. Mm. Um, we weren't doing much else besides amateur motocross at the time, but then that was the start of making plans to get back into off-road racing and and doing some other stuff, uh, like where we're at now. So Mm. yeah, uh, now I'm still considered the manager of the department. But yeah, it's amateur motocross. It's the our entire off road program. You know, professional and amateur racers. Um, you know, we're doing some side by side support now. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's you know anything that's outside of the pro racing team realm is is under the team green umbrella. I would describe it. Okay. Yep. So I want to I want to get into like <clears throat> your position and within the amateur world. And I know we talked about this when we sat down to do that all in project a few years ago, but like signing amateur kids when they're really young. Um, I know that's kind of a hot has been a hot topic pros and cons to it. Um, what, what is the reasoning like for having some of these kids that you sign super young? Cause there is no guarantee. And mm-hmm. I know it's not always necessarily like, the greatest idea either. Like there's yep. falls to that. Yeah, so absolutely. Like, like from your position, like how do you navigate that? I think a lot of that, you know, it's been driven by 
I, I guess I would call it the market. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to talk about, you know, like the pricing on athletes or riders or, you know, really in any sport, it's like market value mm-hmm. and that stuff goes up and down. Mm-hmm. So like if you have a, uh, you know, NFL quarterbacks, like the, the market, you know, guys are just getting bigger money, bigger money, bigger money. And then before you know it, like it happened this year, Patrick Mahomes is like the 15th highest paid quarterback in the league. Mm-hmm. And then him and the team are like, wait a minute, he's like the best guy. Mm-hmm. Why is, you know, we need to restructure this yeah. deal to make him, you know, obviously feel valued for what he means to our team. Mm-hmm. So that market value, market driven, industry driven idea, I would say is what has driven those decisions over the years, uh, in our sport. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a time, um, you know, it was a flurry of just aggressive behavior for lack of a better word by some of the teams in, in, in subscribing to that model, I guess, of, of, Hey, we're going to grab this kid five years and, you know, make this commitment amateur to pro, uh, mentality. And then, you know, the nature of the sport is obviously super competitive and who, who had more amateur talent than anybody? What was us? Yep. Cause that's what we did. That's Mm -hmm. what team green is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, especially at that time when, Things had changed like for right when I came in to Team Green was kind of the end of Suzuki's era. I guess, you know, the Colgress time of like just when it all costs, we're just, okay, we need to go get this guy. Then whatever it takes, go get that guy. We're going to get him from Team Green. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I guess eventually sunk the ship. But, you know, realistically, though, that was a, a, a matter of timing also. You know, when we're having to reduce by 75%. Suzuki was just like, well, we're out, mm-hmm. you know, there, there wasn't a 75%. It was like, we're done, mm-hmm. which was bad, um, yeah. obviously for them, but I, bad for the industry as a whole, yeah. Yeah. uh, you know, Honda was having supported kids earlier in that time. And, you know, they backed way off to next to nothing. You know, we had a massive reduction, but we were still there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we still kept a pretty level presence, so anyway, you know, if you're if you're going into those 2011, 12, 13, 14 years and you know, we have a lot of really good young talent. Um so if you're Yamaha or Honda or whoever, all right, where are we going to get these kids from? You know, your your factory connection Geico at the time, um you know, they don't have mini bike kids. They don't have young talent. Mm-hmm. Where are we going to get them? So we were getting onslaught of, you know, coming after our guys. So it was like, well, you're trying to protect your asset. It's, it's bad for us if we're just losing everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we want to keep these kids that we're invested in and that we believe in. So it just began escalating to where, okay, they grab one guy from us and then, okay, well then we got to, you know, then they're going to go after the next guy. Well, we got to secure that guy. And it just became this, like a war. Yeah, totally. You know, it was, it, it felt like every other week I'd get a phone call of like one of our guys, Hey, Ziggy called Jeff, my called, you know, Bobby Reagan called Tyler Keefe called, you know, all every 
pro. And that was the thing that was a little bit different for us where team green was itself in a way. And then we would transition them to pro circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on these programs, it was, you know, when Geico was calling, they were calling to bring you into Geico. Geico. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the step before you got to Geico. It was mm-hmm. Geico. Yeah. or star or TLD, yeah. you know, the teams that were doing these things. So, I mean, maybe we were to blame at first because we did AC, but to be fair, AC was AC. Yeah. Um, he was a bit of a unicorn. Yeah, exactly. He was obviously super dominant um, throughout his whole amateur time. You know, I think next year is 20 years at Cowie for Adam. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I think his birthday is this Friday. I think he's gonna be like 27. And yeah, Adam, Adam came to Cali when he's, when he's on a 50 basically. Yeah. Um, and was dominant through every step of the way. And, you know, and, and Adam wanted to ride for pro circuit. Okay. You know, like that he was, I'm riding for pro circuit. And like, I, I know the story of they get the contract offer. They're at a movie and Alan, his father is like, you know, all right, Hey, you know, we got, Cowie pro circuit contract and everything. And Adam's like, great, sign it. Good. Awesome. And Alan's like, no, no, like, like it's like maybe in his opinion, not that great. Or like, I want to talk to other, and Adam's like, no, sign it. Like I'm riding for pro circuit. Wow. Um, and yeah, that was, it was a five-year deal. Um, so maybe we were the first to do something that long, uh, of a commitment from a kid to go into pro, Mm -hmm. but yeah, not long after, you know, you had the, um, I guess Tomac was kind of around that time, but he, you know, he was already on a big bike, you know, it was like, all right, he's going to do a year of a amateur and then he's going to go into Geico or Barsha was kind of the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, Zach Bell, he was with us before he went to Geico. Same deal. It was like a year or two on, you know, B class, A class. Then he went pro. Bogle, same thing. Bogle rode for us, went to Geico, <laughs> went to Geico. Uh, you know, rode a year of the A class, then he was pro. Yeah. So like we were kind of getting murdered there, but um, yeah, it was tough. And it then after losing some, you know, it was like Zach Bell left, Bogle left. I feel like I'm missing one in there. Um, but then like the next group of kids that were in there for us, like your Styles Robertsons, your Mumfords, your Garrett Marchbanks, um, Nick Romano's like they were just getting hit up jet Reynolds, like mm-hmm. so aggressively mm-hmm. by these other teams. And we're like, all right, we're like, we got to protect our, our investment and our assets here. And that's when, you know, we bit and did a couple of those things and, you know, they don't always work out for everybody, but yeah. just the nature at that time was everybody was, Oh, that kid rips on a mini bike, grab him. Yeah. Um, it's stopped now, thankfully. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a wild time for sure. Yeah. And risky. Yeah, obviously. That's the thing. It's like, seems so risky to me when you're signing a 10 year old to this long amateur contract. And it's like, well, what happens when the 10 year old turns 12? Maybe he's fucking over it. Yeah. Or like, there's so many variables that, could happen it's like it seems so yeah so sketchy there was again at the time it was 
you know, 250's eligibility rules affect it because, you know, mm. guys are getting flushed out of 250 Supercross based on the rules. Yep. So, you know, teams are like, all right, we need guys, we need guys. And they're, they were filling it with younger talent at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they, you know, where are you going to get younger talent? Okay. You go to Loretta's and you're like, all right, that kid's sick. I want him. Yep. You know, you like for us, you know, Zach Bell was really good. Yeah. Um, he goes to Loretta's in his, in his B class year with us. He had the fastest lap time of the week. Uh, I don't even know if he won a moto all week, maybe one or two. He definitely didn't win a championship, mm-hmm. but they were like, Oh fuck, he's fast. Pick him up. So you get the phone call. Hey, Geico, they, you know, they're going to give assist. And we're like, all right, you know, we're out. Then the next year it was like Bogle, same thing. Bogle went six for six at Loretta's his B class year with us. And then, you know, that week it's like, here's a factory connection contract. And they're like, I go to Mitch. Hey, they want Bogle. Uh, I don't know. I don't have room for him or, you know, not blaming him, but, you know, we kind of were caught with our pants down uh, in a way, I would say. Uh, we, We weren't maybe ready to capitalize on keeping some of those, those guys just from a planning standpoint, because maybe Mitch's team was already done. Yeah. For the next year or two, even we're like, well, where are we going to put them? Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah, I would love to keep them, but oh, look, you know, in a year or two, the team's full because this guy's on a two year deal or, you know, even Adam, because Adam at the time was a little bit of an unknown of like when he was going to turn pro. Yep. So you're kind of like reserving that spot. Like, oh, well, maybe it is this year. Maybe it's supercross or maybe it's motocross. So, Mm you kind of had to hold the position for him because you already had the commitment. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of times too, and I think it's happened to many teams where maybe you have that commitment with somebody and you're like, Oh crap, this guy turns pro next year, but now this guy's available, but we can't take him because we're full. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of missing out on capitalizing on an opportunity of a more experienced guy being available. Um, that is ready to win, yeah. you know, right then and there. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of moving pieces to it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you, is there some level of it where like, aside from, you know, maybe Mitch not having room on the team when these guys are ready to make that transition, take that out of the equation. Is it also like these teams coming to your guys at the time and offering them aside from like, Oh, you're going to go ride for Geico or star like, financially a better offer to, or is it just the fact that you're under Geico or star or whatever? It's the commitment. It's, I would say nine times out of 10, it's really not about the money, which seems odd to say, but, um, it was about like, I know one, one particular one in, in, uh, scenario where the dad was like, look, like I want to be with you guys. I want to ride for you guys. I want my kid to go to pro circuit. Like that's his dream. Mm-hmm. All of these things, you know, siding with, I, with us, I guess you would say, but he was like, but it's not a guarantee that he's going to, you know, we're, we're, we're like three years out from him being a pro, let's mm-hmm. say like he's a mini bike rider, mm-hmm. but I have this other one on the table that guarantees him that he's going to line up at Anaheim someday. He goes, how do I not give my kid that opportunity? At the end of the day, his dream is to race Anaheim, you know, be a professional on a factory team and go race Supercross. 
this one has it and and you guys don't. I mean, you, you could pay him a million bucks to race as an amateur and give him whatever he wants, but you're not then giving him that guarantee that he's going to line up as a factory rider. And at the end of the day, like he's like, how do I not give my kid that chance? Yeah. I go, hey. I was like, you're right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Two schools of thought. Taking taking that opportunity is one, obviously. And there's others that we've had and, and I know that are out there where it's like, no, like this is where we want to be. We're gonna earn our way to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like we'll get there. Yeah. So yeah, everybody looks at those things differently. Yeah. But you know, obviously giving them that guarantee so far out, you know, again, three, four years before they're probably going to line up. Yeah. In the moment, what's the family going to do? They're like, yeah, like that's what we're working towards. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe it's not on the team that we want to be on. Maybe there's a bunch of other risks involved with it, mm-hmm. but, um, it's ensuring the, that opportunity. Yeah. Is that something you guys, like, is that still a common situation for you guys today? Or is it something that you've been able to kind of correct? I I think it's calmed down a lot. Yeah. Um, for sure. From the industry standpoint, okay, a lot. Uh, and again, I, I think that time, uh, those years, it was, it was very industry or market driven, whatever you want to call it to where everybody was caught up in, it was just gamesmanship and one-upsmanship of just grabbing them, grabbing them, grabbing them. I mean, there was years that you'd walk out of the super mini class at a race like Loretta's and the top five kids were walking into guaranteed factory rides before they stepped on a big bike. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I, I don't want the ship has sailed. I would say for the most part on, on something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> again, you're taking a, a big risk and 250 class you're seeing now, um, and there's the unicorns there, like For sure. full credit to Deegan. Like he's gnarly. He's super good. Mm-hmm. He's earned it. He's proven himself. Um, you know, he got that deal off the mini bike, but his trajectory was so aggressive and like his development was so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was no holding that back. Mm-hmm. Like he, he proved to be good enough to be where he is now. It wasn't as if they did it when he was 11 years old and he had, you know, four years of mini bike racing before he became a pro. Um, you know, his trajectory was, like I said, super fast and aggressive and, um, you know, his results prove it. Yeah. So not as risky in that standpoint, I guess you would say, but, um, if the commitment is happening, it's much closer to when you know, they're going to be a professional, Yeah. you know, like a year out, let's say like Mm -hmm. you've seen them ride supercross, you've seen them on the big bike. Um, you know, enough to feel comfortable committing to it, Mm -hmm. but yeah, 12 years old, like mini bike, mini senior class at some race. You're like, Oh yeah, that guy, Eh, that's a tough sell now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, do you think with like Loretta's, I know, I feel like there was a time in like the early 2000, 2000s where it was like you went to Loretta's to get a ride. And it f- feels like it's more commonplace now where you're at Loretta's and you already have a ride. Yep. And it's like, felt like you'd go there and you like, 
kids wanted it. Like they wanted to win. They want. They had something to prove, and now it's kind of like, eh, you know, well, I already have a ride. Yeah. No, for sure. <clears throat> it's a little bit. It's it's gone in. You know, I've been at Cowie for fifteen years, so I've seen this ebb and flow of that. Mm-hmm. So my first year there, I might have told this on our the all in one. Like my first year there, we had Baggett and Wilson. And those were the two, you know, headlining A-class kids for Team Green. Mm -hmm. Battling. And Dean, truthfully, Dean was pretty dominant over Blake all year long Mm -hmm. um, at all the races. Mm -hmm. Then go to Loretta's. And they're fighting for a spot at Pro Circuit, obviously. There's a spot open at Pro Circuit going into the next year. Mm -hmm. And they both want that spot. Um. Blake had been a pro circuit kid since he was on a 65. He's from SoCal. He grew up in that shop. Mitch has a Blake Baggett mug on his desk when he's on a KX 65. Like the relationship is there. Like the, 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 you know, the tie to pro circuit is there. Dean, not so much coming from Canada and, you know, wasn't in that loop, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. but he was getting the results. You know, he was winning a lot of races that year. They go to Loretta's, uh, one class they race together, one class they race separately. Dean wins a class, Blake wins a class. Uh Blake, I I think maybe Blake beat Dean in the one class they did race together. Uh but anyway, Dean won two titles, Blake won one title at Loretta's that year. And Dean wins the Horizon Award. Okay. So like even talking to Mitch all through the year and he's like, oh, "What do you think?" I'm like, I mean, Dean's been the better guy, Mm -hmm. um, got the better results, all this, but you know, he was always a believer in Baggett for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, knew his potential, knew he was fast. I think, I mean, realistically thinking back on that year, like back then the A-class motos everywhere you went were so short and Blake's starts were just absolute trash. And in a five lap moto and you start 15th, like, what are you going to (laughs) do? And Dean pulls the whole shot credit to Dean. He got the starts, but anyway, like you know, maybe Blake didn't really get to show his potential. potential. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we leave Loretta's and I'm like, I don't know, like kind of on the fence. Like, I think they're both good. So then they had the, what was the, the slam? Oh yeah. Transworld slam. Transworld slam <laughs> yeah. at milestone. Yes. Yeah. Blake and Dean go race the Transworld slam. Okay. And they end up in a bracket race together. And I'm, and I think Mitch was there that day. And I remember standing on the fence, AC and his dad, and here's Dean and Blake in a bracket race at the trans world slam. And this is like weeks after Loretta still. And like, to the point they still hadn't, like, we hadn't decided who was going to go to Mitch's team. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, fuck this. Like, I think this means something right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like these two guys, like to them though, cause they knew like, this means something yeah. like this little, like one, two laps at the most bracket race at milestone, like means something to getting a ride on pro circuit. Yeah. Dean won it. Okay. Not to say that's how Dean got the ride at pro circuit, <laughs> okay. Okay. but Dean did end up getting the ride at pro circuit, but Mitch made the commitment to Blake. He was like, you know, go do, you know, wherever you're going to end up for a year. He's like, you're on the team the next year. So then like Dean did the Suzuki thing, or I'm sorry, Blake went and rode for Bobby Hewitt for a year 
And then won a race. Yep. He won his first supercross or a high point. He won high point national that year. He might've won a supercross too. Yep. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, the next year he was on pro circuit. Was there any like animosity or hard feelings between like Blake and Mitch when that decision was made? I, yeah, I think so for sure. And again, I think just the longstanding relationship for so long. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, that's what's hard at the end of the day. You got to go with what you believe is going to be the, you know, the best, yeah. best fit, best guy, you know, going to get you the best results. He got championships out of both of them. Yeah. For Mitch. Yep. Absolutely. So I guess in the end it, it kind of worked out, but yeah, I think it was obviously a little salty for Blake to, for sure. to not get that, that first year, but I think it was cool for Mitch to, you know, you'll, you'll be here in a year. Yep. Like I'll make that commitment to you. Yeah. Blake and Dean didn't get along that way. No, it was not, not okay. For stories. It was not very good. <laughs> yeah. Even in my time, like it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't real sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's wild. What's been like, has there been one guy that you wish you had or would have like pushed for a little bit more that you never got? Um, that's a good one. I don't know. It's funny because the Lawrence brothers came up at one point, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking back. Uh, before they came to America, mm-hmm. uh, cause they rode cowies in Europe. Okay. They were, they were on a cowie program in Europe and we don't have the best like tie with the Europe program over there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were like part of bud racing. Okay. Yep. Um, but yeah, I like really at the time I just, I had said to Mitch, like I didn't have the, we didn't have the means to support them, uh, or do what was necessary, I guess you would say. So at the time, you don't know what it's going to become. Um, but yeah, obviously that would have been cool. Um, I don't know. There's a few, like, ironically, I tried to sign Jordan Smith twice and that didn't work out. Uh, I tried to sign Sexton twice and it didn't work out. Okay. Um, I tried to sign Plessinger. That didn't work out. <laughs> But it kind of goes back to they were all relatable though because it uh, it was a time where you know we weren't making those commitments mm. you know like tried to sign Plessinger and he was all in and all about it but then he was like well Star is going to give me a pro deal I didn't have that okay. so he went to Star okay. um, Jordan Smith that's how he ended up at Geico you know it was like yeah. Team Green deal sick like it's mm-hmm. super good. Mm-hmm. Um, he was supposed to ride our bike. Like we, we had a test set up and he was supposed to ride our bike. And I had this funny story. I had gear made for him and, uh, it was in our shop and Justin Bogle and his dad came to visit our shop one day. It was around like Lake Elsinore national or something like that. So, and this is when Justin had already, he's at Geico, okay. but Justin, and his dad came to Cali to come see us and hang out. And, uh, <laughs> Justin or his dad, they see this Smith gear in the shop and they're like, Smith. And then they see the bike. They're like, what are you doing with Smith? I'm like, oh, we're going to test with him on Monday. And he goes, uh, pretty sure he's signed with Geico. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he, he's going to Geico. <laughs> so I called the dad like that day. I'm like, hey, you know, like I heard, you know, this, this, this. And he's like, 
yeah, it's true. We're going to go to Geico. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so that was a bummer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like Jordan as an amateur. Like he just had, like I saw he rode with a lot of heart, Yeah. like just never quit, gave it everything he had. And I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. I kind of saw past the crashing a little bit. I yeah. was like, the effort was there. Effort's like I was there. super into the effort. Effort's still there. Uh, yeah. The effort is still there. It's spe- like speed. Yeah. It's all there. You know? And then when we got him on Mitch's program, those two years, but he, you know, he's hurt the whole yeah. time. And like Mitch was the same way. He's like, dude, like I know he's fast, but you know what? He's just hurt. He's was hurt the whole time. What do we, mm-hmm. what do we do? Um, but yeah, Plessinger, same thing. Like I said, he went to star cause we didn't have that guarantee for him. Mm-hmm. Smith was the same way. Sexton. I thought we were close the first time. And then the second time he ended up going to Geico, but he could have gone to pro circuit. Okay. We offered him to to go to Pro Circuit, okay. but it was the same time as Forkner. Mm. Uh, we were doing both. Okay. It was that was intense because Geico was going after Austin, okay. and we thought Austin was gone. Like we thought he was signed, sealed, and delivered to Geico. Mm-hmm. So then we got aggressive on Chase, okay. and then the Austin thing kind of started coming back, and it was like, oh, we might get both these guys. But then Geico was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So we ended up with Austin. They ended up with Chase. Oh, funny. Fuck. That would have been gnarly, though, to have both those guys at once. Yeah. They, it was kind of weird. Like, in one way, they were buddies a little bit. Midwest kids grew up mm-hmm. riding together. And I don't think there was really much issue with them. Yeah. But I think it was like two things for Chase. Like, Laraco was there at the time. Okay. And he was like super into Laraco. Mm hmm. Um, and then, yeah, kind of like, I don't I'm just, I want to be separate from Forkner. Cause at the time everything was about Austin. Austin. Yeah. He was the headlining amateur. And they were kind of rivals a little bit, weren't they? Like, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And Austin was always kind of the better. Of the he two. had the upper hand on him. So yeah, I think, you know, realistically for Chase, I think he was looking to separate from that Yeah. or I shouldn't even say separate, but you know, not be attached for sure. Uh, or, or you know, appear like the second guy, Yeah, which I think is something that we we've done a pretty good job of, of like, you know, if we've got two heavy hitter guys, like same class, things like that to, you know, be equal with them, you know, same equipment and things like that. Yeah. So you mentioned like Jordan Smith when he rode for PC and obviously the hearts there, the speed's all there. It's just a crashing. Mm -hmm. He was there for a couple of years and then moved on. Austin. Yep. I, 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 my heart breaks for that kid. I want to see that kid figured out so badly, but I guess my question is Jordan comes and goes, speeds there, hearts there, crashes all the time. Austin's been there a very long time Mm -hmm. and it's still been like the injury, injury, injury. Um, so what's like for you guys in that decision, like what's the, the difference maker to keep, trying to trust the process with Austin and you know, you have Jordan's like, okay, kind of the same thing, but he's, yeah. he's come and gone already. Um, I think part of it, timing, mm-hmm. timing and contract commitment. Um, as far as, you know, Austin was one of those kids. Yep. He, we signed him from an amateur, uh, into Mitch's program, but realistically it was only that last year, <clears throat> year and a half, as an amateur okay. that he was signed to go to pro circuit. Mm-hmm. 
And then the first two years at PC, I mean, obviously it was super good. I won an outdoor national, really his amateur year, you know, his first year of riding outdoors, won a national, goes into rookie year of Supercross, getting podiums, podiums in outdoor, second year of Supercross, winning races. So you're at the end of his second full year of pro and he's winning races Mm -hmm. and hadn't had his big injuries yet. So thinking of timing 17, 18, so 19 first year of a new deal, or maybe 18 was 19 winning every race. Mm. I mean, everyone saw it just lights out a little reckless, (laughs) (laughs) but lights out. But I mean, I kind of goes, you know, a lot of parallels to Deegan at at now looking back at Austin for sure. Yeah. You know, like the highs, the lows, the speed, the, the recklessness isn't a fair word. That's not fair to, to Hayden, but goes for it. Yeah. You know, there's no fear. He hasn't had the big crashes. Uh, he's been healthy. Like again, credit to him. He's done a fantastic job, but the parallels are there, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of excitement. Um, but then, yeah, Austin has the big crash, but right before that, Cowie had re-upped with him. Okay. So you have that, and then, you know, you still got two or three years maybe, and you know, and you're committed to him, obviously. Mm-hmm. But shoot, he's, you know, comes back the next year, takes the title down to the wire with Ferrandis, yep. down to the last round in 2020, mm-hmm. blows his guts apart, misses outdoors. But again, like, not many guys went toe-to-toe with Ferrandis for a title in the 250 class, mm-hmm. you know, really AC and Osborne, mm-hmm. you know, Austin went toe to toe for titles with chase with Dylan with Osborne. Mm-hmm. I mean, bad, bad dudes that went on to all win 450 titles. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the knee blows his guts apart, comes back the next year, won a race. Yep. And I'm trying to think of what injury it was that happened that year. But it was early on in Supercross. Might have just been a collarbone. Was that when? Like the bubble races. I think it was. Yeah, I think the bubble, like uh, it was in practice at Houston or something super early in the year. Just clip that jump, collarbone. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, And then the next year in Supercross was the Lawrence incident. The whole Lawrence, yeah. Which, again... Won a main event that night. I mean, and that wasn't even it, his fault. In no, my opinion. that was not Austin's fault. So if you whatsoever. if you go, if you go to the last two, the Lawrence one, arguably not Austin's fault. Racing incident mm-hmm. wasn't doing anything dumb. Mm-hmm. I, I think truthfully that night Austin was doing a great job of like he won the first main event. Mm-hmm. The weekend before he had taken a second in the opener. Jet won it. Austin took just like a solid second. And then that second main event, he didn't have the speed. Mm-hmm. Jet was doing jet things. All right, hey, hey, bud, you, you, you go. Yeah. You know when you read both of Jet's number plates going through the whoops in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and Austin didn't have that. Like, yeah. have at it, bud. Yeah. But then they came together, and and you know, collarbone. Yeah. And then that leads us to this year. Yeah. Again. Yeah, he fucked up the start. Like he got a bad start. 
that's where that happened. And I always say bad things happen when you get bad starts. Mm-hmm. Like people want to complain, oh, I was, you know, this guy crashed in front of me. This happened in the first, like, well, you put yourself in that position. Mm-hmm. He botched the start coming out, arguably should have backed out of it. Mm-hmm. Didn't. It's not what I'm, I'm that conservative guy. I back out. You're not guys like Santa Monica College. Exactly. Guys <laughs> like him don't. That's what makes him who he is. Yeah. Um, but I think he's mellowed out a lot. And if you, I, I had read an interview that he did not too long ago where he, he kind of alluded to that. He's like, you know, he's not sending it as much as he used to. Mm-hmm. Cause when you go through those, it, yeah, you're gonna, I don't want to say second guess, but try to be a little smarter. Yeah. Um, you can't deny that the kids won 12 races and mm-hmm. arguably of, of still with that asterisk of, if he can stay healthy, mm-hmm. a title favorite next year. Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah. And it's fingers crossed, you know, yeah. I, I like you, you know, like you said, uh, you hope nothing but the best for him. Like you want us, it'll, if he can get it done, it'll be the sweetest, thing for him that to me it, it'll be it'll be emotional if he can get that off his back that's up there with like christian winning his title yeah because yeah I, I would just wanted to ask you that because i know with him being back under mitch's tent next year like mm-hmm. i've seen the comments and all that shit and people are yeah like, what the fuck you doing and i i like the loyalty mm-hmm. and like you said i like i know like i know austin's stats so like i i understand why it's austin over jordan but I wanted to ask that so that's yeah. out there for people to understand and hear those stats. It's like 12 races. Well, I, I do a lot of, we always call it uh money ball. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the numbers. I like the statistics side of it. And, you know, Mitch and I talk about this stuff all the time and uh, you know, we'll be getting into something. He's like money ball it for me, money, you know, he'll give me like five guys, you know, mm-hmm. if we're talking about certain riders and this and that, and he's like, all right, money ball it. Mm-hmm. So I take those five guys or whatever, and you, you know, you run the numbers mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, you know, this guy gets the most podiums. This guy gets the most top tens. This guy has the best start percentage, mm-hmm. you know, out of how many races, how many does he line up for? Mm-hmm. How many seasons have they completed? You know, all those factors of like, you know, trying to put facts with what you see also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, for the last handful of years, Austin had won more supercrosses than the field combined. Oh, wow. You know? Okay. You know, when you've won 11 races and you think about the field, okay, you know, Jordan's got two or three or RJ's got two or, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, you know, again, there's, there's not a lot of guys out there that have won obviously as many races as he's had and the podiums. Yeah. Um, so it's like, if he can be there obviously the big asterisk, but you know, be there and put yourself on the podium week in and week out, then you can, you can get it done. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my fingers are crossed. I've never, I've never met Austin. I've never been around him, but it's like, fuck, I just want to see, I yeah, want to see him figure it out. Obviously it's frustrating for him to see, read, hear all the, the negative and like, no one wants it more than him mm-hmm. and no one is going to be harder on himself than him yeah. um, for the mistakes or the incidences. And again, you talk about the last two, it's uh, hard to point the finger at him making the mistake. 
Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, he got a bad start, uh, the jet one, but you know, he clipped a jump and broke a collarbone. It, you know, you go back to the the Nashville one when he did his knee. Yeah, you can point the finger a bit and be like, "Hey, bud, like mm-hmm. that's on you." Yeah. You know, crashing happens, but yeah. you know, you were you were playing with fire that year. Yeah. in qualifying and, and all that. I mean, there was a highlight reel of stuff in qualifying where he was getting away with murder that year. Yeah. But I mean, that's when you're rolling like that and just winning and your confidence is like through the roof. Mm-hmm. That's what a 19 year old kid's going to do. Yeah. Just push and push and push. And you, know, you got bit. Yeah. You seem invincible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you're hitting the ground and getting up. You're like, all right, we're good. Yeah. But then when you don't get up, and then you don't get up and then you don't get up. I think you're a little bit, you know, you're more where he's at now. Of like, all right, I gotta, we gotta think a little bit more here. Yeah, for sure. Are you, uh, well, your relationship with Mitch and team green and pro circuit, like, would you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you consider yourself like kind of one of Mitch's like right hand men when it comes to like decision-making and who's, making that transition from team green to PC or from another team to PC? Like, yeah, we, we talk, I think people would be surprised to know how much we talk, okay. how often we talk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we talk about that stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like now we're talking about the future and what's not only team green stuff, um, but more so of being aware and keeping an eye on what's going on in the paddock. And knowing, you know, who's available, paying attention to what's going on in Europe. Um, yeah, just general awareness of what opportunities are are out there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I know I can go back to January of this year where I told our guys, I'm like, you need to get kitchen. Okay. Like I like before the season even started, I was like, yeah. kitchen's up. You need to get kitchen. Yeah. Like, I don't know where, like, you got to figure out how that fits in, where that fits in, who we got, who's doing what, whatever. But I'm like, I, I, I like, I want kitchen. Yeah. So that was someone that we, you know, eyes were on really early. And then he bombed at A1. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> my kitchen take, maybe not so hot. <laughs> it worked out, though. Yeah. I don't know what happened at that race, but he, he yeah, he wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that worked out. Yeah. Like, all day. I was like, God damn it. Like, he's really not showing me what I want to see right now. <laughs> <laughs> when did you guys end up getting that deal done? Um, if you're even allowed to say. Uh, yeah, I'll leave that one be. That's fine. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. So uh, who else is new on the team for 24? Besides uh, Max. Full Max. That's right. Yep. That's right. And that, That's right. That, was a, that was a late one. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of eleventh hour. Okay. Um, shoot, I know even at Ironman, uh, Mitch had met with Max and Talon. Okay. Uh, about about that. Okay. So yeah, very very late for for something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, super late. Okay. Yeah, but How? he's excited about him. Mitch is Mitch is betting on that one himself. Like yeah. he's he's into it, which is cool. I I think that will be a good fit. I, yeah, I like that, and it's cool. Like for the history of the sport, like Talon right oh, for yeah. Mitch and, and whatnot. And I was like, fuck now Talon's son is under Mitch. Yeah. Family. If you're Mitch, I don't know how it makes you feel. <laughs> true. True. But yeah, super cool yeah. story there for sure. Yeah. How, uh, Joe leaving mm-hmm. 
that I feel like as a, from like a fan perspective for me, that sucks. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a bummer. Uh, Joe did a fantastic job, you know, the time he was there. And I just think the, the story of how he ends up there is cool. Uh, you know, like, and, and that was again, something, you know, it was, I guess you could say, probably even later than now, it was maybe November mm-hmm. when we had those guys ride. We had four guys ride the bike, two guys on one day, two guys on another day. I feel like I was at mini O's the year that we were doing this. Cause I remember talking to Mitch both days that, you know, the guys that we had ride, ride the bike and us talking about it. And, uh, you know, he called me and I was like, talked about, you know, how each guy was and everything. And like, Joe was the best guy. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all right, Joe's the guy. So to be, you know, the fifth guy, super late addition to, to bring him on and then, you know, get the results that he did. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, he went from being the fifth guy to like the guy. Yeah. The team. Yeah. I mean, rad. for, for his tenure there, he had great results, won races, got podiums. Yeah. Um, I think, when it came time to be like the favorite, mm-hmm. um, that was a lot, uh, pressure, yeah. not from the team, but just like the outside chatter, I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I mean, you'd see him ride during the week and he's lights out and you're like super high up on it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that just fuels talk of race winning title favorite. And I think for anybody, that's a hard adjustment to go from like, you know, you got a day to prove yourself to get the job to then, you know, the pressure of being uh, a title favorite or expected to be a title contender, you know, that changes guys. Um, and not, I'm not saying just Joe, but I think just in general, you see it with guys that the hype builds on them to, to step up to the plate and now be that guy. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to, to make that, a that adjustment, you know, they, sometimes just ride differently yeah what um i have a few more things here for you um what was it like backtracking a bit having like ac as a team green guy like what obviously he's one of the most successful amateur riders ever like what Mm -hmm. was that like to be a part of that journey and see all that up close and personal it was fun you know for me Obviously, even just from when I started there, Adam was already a very high profile, mm-hmm. established kid. Um, so maybe I was a little bit nervous of just like how to deal with it, how to navigate it. I didn't really know them. I I, I didn't really know them at all from when I started. Um, so you're kind of having to feel out how it's going to be and what they're like and how they function and this and that. And um when I came in, that's the same time that Adam had switched like his, I'll say his bike to pro circuit. Okay. So before he was using FMF and PR2 on his suspension. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that Dave Gallen uh, worked on before he left and I came in was transitioning Adam to be using pro circuit. So he worked with Mitch and kind of organized all that to uh, where Adam was getting pro circuit support for the technical side, I guess I would call it. So then Mitch became a big part of it. So then, you know, Mitch and I are working together and navigating all that. And it was kind of funny because, you know, I was providing one thing from the Kawasaki side. And then Mitch also had 
the tangibles of like the equipment on his side. Mm. So Alan kind of naturally gravitated over towards Mitch. Cause it was like, well, Mitch is the one that he can make my bike better. Okay. He can make my bike faster yeah. and bones can make my suspension better. And like, yeah. Yeah. I was on the other side like, I didn't have maybe that tangible of like holding the cards of making your bike faster and getting this and this and this. Yeah. So like Alan pushed Mitch super hard, uh, to the very last day of like more, like, I know you have more, like it was always like this running. There was so many, there was a gnarly relationship between all of us, (laughs) but like, uh, you know, just push, push, push. Like, I know you're holding back on me. I know you're holding back on me. And then Mitch, you know, you know, grinds a cylinder and puts it on the bike, dinos it. It's a little bit better. It rides in Adam's like, yeah, this is sick. And you know, Alan's like, fuck you. I knew you'd been holding out on me. Like, dude, we're not like, we're giving you the best we got. It's not like I have this stash of better just laying there. Like, why would I do that? We're doing the best we can. But he pushed like really hard to always, you know, make the bike better and, and credit to Mitch. Like to this day, he still works on making the motorcycle better. Obviously the 250 for the race team, but you know, the mini bikes, Mm-hmm. Like he's always, always pushing and working to come up with a new idea or try something. And, yeah. um, even as we have less and less guys that ride the bike, he still is pushing on that. But no, Adam was, I really enjoyed working with Adam because as everyone knows, he's so intelligent yes. and articulate and to be able to communicate with a kid of that age, the way you could communicate with him was super, super cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his dad was hard on him, but he pushed him. And one of the things I always tell people that I thought was cool was that like when the day was done, it was over, Okay, you know? So like if they're at the track, whether it was practice or race, and if Alan was harping on him about something or, you know, being hard about, a moto, the way he rode, whatever the case may be. When the day was done, it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like they drove home and he was still wearing on him. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was cool. But then it kind of also, as Adam got older, I felt like he listened to his dad, of course, but then I was able to have conversations with him where like, it's funny at Loretta's Allen wouldn't watch the races a lot of times. Okay. Like he would stay in the Cowie pit area and just watch the timing and scoring on the screen. Okay. And obviously Adam won more than he lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but he'd come back and then he would talk to Adam about stuff in the moto. And I'm like, he didn't and like Adam and I would then talk like, well, you know, he didn't watch. He's like, yeah, I know. But it's just like this, it's the stuff that he harps on me about being better, like with his technique, whatever the case may be. So like, I would kind of then have those conversations with him, like watching the race, but you could really get detailed, like in his riding, Mm -hmm. like even when he's winning, it would, the conversation was more than like, Hey, great job. Good moto. It was like, you could really talk to him about his riding Mm -hmm. and things that he did on the bike. And like, he listened and like really did a good job of implementing, you know, what you talked about. And I think I took that for granted. Um, Mm. Two things, like being able to communicate with a kid like that and then him like doing it. But then also just how 
uh, efficient he was at like executing races. Mm-hmm. Like a kid at that age, just from starts and executing the race from start to finish without making big mistakes or crashing or pressure. Like he was next level when it came to that. So good when it came to that, yeah. it was like clockwork. So that's something I think I I took for granted for sure. Like you're like, why isn't every 11 year old just lights out clockwork (laughs) executes the start. Like, like you just never saw him like just falter almost. And that's what obviously led to so much belief in him because you, you just saw him doing stuff that other kids weren't capable of doing the maturity in his riding, the maturity of him as a person or a kid, like, uh, yeah, it's just next level stuff. It's super cool. Do you, th- I'm trying, I've never met Adam. I want him on the podcast. <laughs> it's like one of these days I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. Um, do you think like Adam had a gnarly amateur career? Mm-hmm. He was able to win an outdoor championship. He's obviously got super cross race wins in 250 class, had that West coast title under lock yep. until he didn't. Yep. Um, and then also a guy like Mike Alessi that had just as gnarly of an amateur career. Yep. I don't know. I don't know what the stats are, like how close they are, like who won more. Um, but Mike was like the next greatest thing ever. Yep. Mike won races, never won a championship. Um, I just think it's interesting. Like some of these guys that have these super gnarly amateur careers and then they make that transition and Adam has a title, but like, Arguably didn't meet expectation. Yeah. 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 And Alessi. As shitty as that seems like, oh, he won a title in a bunch of races, but we're still, I don't, I'm not going to say disappointed by any means, but like to, I think where you're going, like to be that good and not achieve more. Yeah. Like the expectation is so high. It's so high. You're just expecting like guys like Mike and AC to come in and like, all right, yep. it, it's fucking, it's over. We're yep. going to be like McGrath stats or James, something. Ricky, yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, and it, doesn't happen necessarily. And yeah. I don't mean that as a dig to either one of them. No, 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 it's no. Just like, yeah. It's just such an interesting like stat that I think about sometimes. Well, that's the hardest thing arguably for me Yeah, is you're trying to figure out that formula. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, I don't look at just kids that come through our program, but just any, any of them, any, I mean, I've, at this point, I've been able to see kids literally from start to finish through a career, mm-hmm. like almost from, yeah, from mini bike to retirement, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then you try to think back, you know, if they were good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, why, what, what led, uh, this guy to win so much and be so good. What led this guy to falter or struggle or not meet expectation so for me, like, then I'm just backtracking and thinking about, cause whoever it is, you know, any of the guys out there on the gate today at a professional race, I watched from childhood, mm-hmm. you know, except, you know, a, a Lawrence being yeah. in Europe or also, you know, a, a foreign race racer, mm-hmm. but an American kid, you know, Plessinger, let's just say mm-hmm. like literally from 10 years old have been able to watch his career, mm-hmm. you know? And again, he won a supercross title. Yep. He won a motocross title. 450 has been a bit of a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. I think realistically, it just shows you the, how 
gnarly that is Mm -hmm. like, and I, and I tell people like, it doesn't get any easier. Mm -hmm. Like it just gets harder every single step of the way you go. Um, but yeah, trying to figure out that formula of like, to your point, you know, why was Alessi maybe less successful on paper than Adam Mm -hmm. or, you know, and I think people are quick to point to like, if you're the, if you're the adversary you know, we talked about chase and Austin, you know, chase has the upper hand, you know, in, in the career category at this point, um, AC Cooper, although that's a little bit blown out more than what it truthfully was. Mm -hmm. Um, but Cooper's a two time 450 supercross champion. RV and Alessi. RV and Alessi. You know, there's there's those instances to point to. But man, in the moment, it's super hard yeah. to, as I'm there watching AC do all the things I just talked about AC doing yeah. and be like, nah, we're going to go with this guy. For sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, or even Austin and Chase at the time. Like Austin, as an amateur, was pretty similar to Adam in that sense of like clockwork fucking amazing starter calculated didn't take risks didn't crash like just got the job done Mm -hmm. he would win motos with kids up his ass every lap of the moto and like you're watching sweating it like you gotta go like you gotta go and then he's like no i'm good like i know he wasn't gonna pass me like he was totally calm and cool Mm -hmm. in that and you're like all right like great like you're good i'm good yeah but, you know, and, and Chase was like inconsistent with starting or he'd crash and make, you know, you saw way more fault yeah. in his riding uh, growing up. So, yeah, that's how, how do you that's that's tough. How do, how do I go to Mitch back? You know, yeah, yeah, I get the Forkner kids. He's sick. But this one and, and, and Mitch is like, it's winning. Yeah. You know, as an amateur, like if you're if you're really wanting to sell him on a guy, he's like. Like be a winner, mm-hmm. you know, cause being a little old school, like that's this, you know, Ricky James, yeah. you know, the bad boys R- RV won a lot too, as an amateur, yeah. like don't mistake that he, you know, the Alessi rivalry was there, yeah. but he was a badass. Yeah. And like, it's like, if they're a badass, then they're going to be a badass later. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of always been one of his mantras, like okay. speed kills. Like if you're badass, fast mini bike guy, you can be a badass fast big bike guy. Yeah. But as we've talked, you know, there's so many variables in it all. So, so yeah, when someone figures out the formula, give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about it. Let me know the secret, yeah. but it's uh damn it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever be able to figure it out either. I mean, of course, I think there's key tangibles you'll see in somebody. Yes. I mean, there's been plenty of fast kids and, you know, people are like, what about this kid? Like, he's super fast, but you know enough or see enough to be like, eh, like it. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes some, you know, a guy can turn a corner or whatever the case may be and something clicks. But, yeah. you know, Kitchen is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched him from a 65. And he was a kid that was around and he was good and he was fast, but maybe he was just like a tick off of the kids that we had, mm-hmm. you know, grew up in like, uh, from an age standpoint, 
Styles Robertson, Mumford mm-hmm. uh, type era. Yeah. And, you know, kids that rode for us that won a lot and did really good. And then Levi was like just kind of off them. Mm-hmm. You know, if those guys are one, two, three, Levi's five, six, seven, four, five, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're, you're like, he's there, you know, he's good and he's pretty competitive, but like didn't really show you anything along the way to really catch your eye. Mm-hmm. And then he shows up that one year at Loretta's and he was just lights out fast. Yeah. And I, you know, you can make an argument that he rode a, a less competitive class, but that's what made sense for him at the time. Regardless of who was in the class, you could see the riding and be like, oh, mm-hmm. that like he went to another level yeah. with his riding. Yeah. Like didn't matter who was out there. Like I hadn't, it's funny because that year I hadn't watched maybe his first moto or two in that particular class because we didn't have any riders in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd heard he dominated and then I go out to watch one of them. And I watched two laps of the moto and I was like, yeah, he's good. And I walked off. I was like, I, I saw enough. Like yeah. he's fast. Yeah. So like, I didn't need to see more. I'm yeah. just going to see him win by 40 seconds instead of 30. If I keep watching the moto, <laughs> but I literally, I watched him for two laps and I was so impressed with his riding. I'm like, yeah, he's legit. Yeah. Like you can see in the riding that he turned a corner mm-hmm. and sometimes that happens for a guy. Yeah. yeah. So for uh, like, for me in that moment, I wasn't in a position to capitalize on it, which sucked. Cause even afterward, Mitch is like the kitchen kid. Like he's good. Yeah, but yeah he is. It's like, what are you going to do? I was like, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, he's like, yeah, you're right. Like we just, there wasn't anything there for him. Yeah. And then, you know, so that's like, you cap kind of like, then the opportunity came up now, like, okay, now we can try to j- capitalize on it. Yeah. And it might be better timing now because he's had these yeah. few years under his belt. And I feel like he's at the point where totally. it's like, let's fucking figure out how to go win this thing. Totally. Yep. Um, rad. Uh, what, a for you. Okay. Two things regarding team green and then we'll wrap up, uh, with a few random questions. Um, and I know I asked you this in the all in when we did it, but like for someone that's an amateur kid or f- family that is trying to get support. They want to be under the team green tent. Like Mm. what is, how do they go about trying to navigate that and be a team green kid? Um, obviously a question that I get a lot and really the, there's different facets of it. Team green support, obviously, but, Mm. um, when you're talking like the higher end of the support, I guess I, I mean, I'm honest with them. I I say the results and the speed, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you've just like we were talking about, like, you you know, show that potential, Mm -hmm. show the speed, like going back to my mom's Ivan Tedesco story, you know, like she went to Loretta's, she saw a kid and she was like, holy shit, that kid's good. Yeah. Like, I like seeing that. I like going to a race and like, yep, like seeing something that impressed me or like seeing something that truly stood out to me the way they rode, like just a moto in general of like, man, that kid, like he was fantastic. That moto, like he really, really caught my eye. Might not even have won, yeah, but just the way they ride the bike, just uh, maybe they came through the pack was aggressive, you know, Mm -hmm. any of those tangible assets that you're looking for, like you're, 
like show me something. Um, so I like that. Like, I like trying to see that in the guys and find something. And, um, but yeah, I, again, I try to be as brutally honest with people as possible of, you know, yeah, if if you want to be AC guy or whoever, you know, it's, it's results and, and, and in the riding, the, the proof is on the racetrack because yeah. at the end of the day, that's the ultimate goal as they move on. Uh, you know, it's, it's about the results and performing. Yeah. Um, for you, like career wise with team green, do you see yourself? And I know we've talked about this from time to time, but like, do you see yourself staying in this role until it's time for you to retire? Or is there like other things that you want to pursue within Kawasaki or like kind of where do you see yourself career wise moving forward? I've thought about that a lot lately as I got my 15 year anniversary <laughs> plaque at work <laughs> and you're, you know, getting ready to go somewhere like Minio's for the 18th straight year now. And you're like, like, yeah, some of that is a little bit, uh, tiresome isn't a fair word for it, but like, ready for something different mm-hmm. to be fair and, and honest. Um, but you always find, you know, the passion is still there like yeah. for the sport and my love of it. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy helping the kids still and, and being a part of that. I think one of the cool things for me in the last handful of years, as the job has changed a little bit, like that, the off-road stuff, mm-hmm. like it's a new challenge trying to go there and succeed. Um, so I know like on a personal level for me within the job, that's something I really want to accomplish. Okay. I want to, I want to win there and, you know, build up the programs that we have and, and get guys to win races and, you know, that side of racing the off-road, it's so obviously dominated by one group yeah. for the most part. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, a juggernaut of um, equity built into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just that's what they've done forever. And the, yeah. the commitment level has been so much for so long. So to break into that and, you know, have something where you're capable of getting winning riders and then accomplishing winning is a new challenge and something that's cool. So like we won the national enduro championship this year. Okay. Um, which Kawasaki hasn't won since 1995. <laughs> Who won it in 95? Ty Davis. Okay. okay. And to be fair, like for a long, long time, we weren't participating in it. So of mm-hmm. course we're not going to win it. But this year, our team was the first year. We got back into off-road like GNCC and works and stuff like that in 19. Um, but this year was the first year we put a guy full-time in that series. Okay. And uh, yeah, Grant Baylor won the title and he had won the title before. But for us to have a team that he wanted to be a part of and have a bike that's capable of winning, um, you know, it all builds the steps towards winning the races and winning the championship. So like I've, that's been cool. Yeah. Something different and something rewarding to, you know, start it, get the guy, get the, you know, the group and get everything going to, to be able to accomplish something like that. So it's kind of a, Obviously, winning is always the goal, but, uh, you know, it's a nice cherry on the top for all that. But I guess it's hard sometimes because I I see, you know, everyone graduates from Team Green except me. 
You know what okay. I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. everyone gets to move on to a degree except me. Mm-hmm. So naturally that would be a goal uh, is to transition into something. I, I want to do something that benefits the sport. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like doing things and putting my input to where it's creating betterment for the sport. Okay. Kind of going back to the AMA thing. Like yeah. to me, that was a, an opportunity to try to accomplish that. Yeah. Just the timing was bad. Yeah. Um, but I still have that same mentality. And when I, you know, go to meetings with MX sports or Feld and, you know, the other OEMs, you know, there's several meetings throughout the year where we all get together and, you know, I don't want to be self-serving for Kawasaki. I, 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 my input is always for the betterment of the races and the families and Mm -hmm. improving that. So I, I really like that part of it, trying to just what I can contribute to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. is an ultimate goal. But I mean, Kawasaki has been good to me, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a good company to work for being there as long as I have has to say something. Yep. Um, so yeah, being conservative and the stability is feels nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, maybe something, something will come up in the future, whether it's there or something else. But, um, yeah, I think you always have to be open to opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right on. So a few little things here that I'm asking everyone at the end. Uh, do you see yourself as a realist, optimist, or a pessimist? Realist. <laughs> you are very real. Couldn't, couldn't be more. <laughs> <laughs> to a fault. Matter of black and white, matter of fact. No one, no one is more so than my boss, Dan Fahey. He is okay. the most, like, it's awesome. Okay. Just like, you ask him a question and like, you're asking him because you want him to maybe side one way or the other of what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then he just hits you straight with the concrete fact. And you're like, God damn it. He's right. <laughs> Love like it. it didn't point me in either direction. He just told me what I already know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Oh fuck. That's good. Um, uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Ice cream. What flavor? Vanilla. Vanilla? Once again, conservative. <laughs> realist holiday boring just uh, straight down the middle maybe we got to get you back at santa monica college yeah man could have gone real sideways <laughs> uh, do you want like like chocolate syrup or anything on your vanilla ice cream or no straight vanilla? i so as a kid the dairy queen by my house they had nerds blizzards Ooh, okay. that was the go-to okay it was a nerds blizzard okay it's, you can't, they don't exist anymore. I, I tried to, so if you go to Sonic, mm-hmm. cause they have the, like the slushy thing yeah. and you yeah. can get nerds in that. Mm-hmm. And then they have the blast, which is like their knockoff on a blizzard. Okay. So if they're willing, I can go to Sonic and be like, Hey, I want a blast, but I want it with nerds. Okay. okay. Sometimes they'll do it. I had one woman tell me, I don't recommend it. Like I, I didn't ask for your recommendation. This is what I want. I'm telling you what I want. Yes. Can you do it? Yeah. And they'll do it. Uh, and I went to Dairy Queen one time that was attached to a convenience store and I bought nerds in the convenience store. Okay. I brought it to the Dairy Queen <laughs> and asked them to make it. Would they do it? They wouldn't. They would not oh. take outside foods. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Damn. So like that's good. Yeah. It's, it's a rare one. Huh. That, that was my go-to. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, if you could have dinner with three people dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, my mom. Okay. Yep. Hands down. Yeah. I would be 
That'd be good. Yeah. Anyone else? Two nope. More? Two more? Just more. Oh, I get two. I get, you, you, I you get, get three. three. You get oh. three. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe three dinners with her. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Yeah. I'd that's... take the time I didn't get. Okay. So yeah, I'll do that. All right. That's fair. Um, sweet. Anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on? No, no. I appreciate you having me. And, um, I feel like most times when I do an interview or something, it's like too serious about like present day topic or something. So Mm. it's cool to kind of tell the story and be a little bit more, not so middle of the road, maybe. I don't know. Get some opinion in there. Yeah, no, that was solid. It was cool. I didn't know. It's funny. Like as long as I've known you and us hanging out and stuff, like outside of the track, like I didn't know you did outdoors or anything like that. And yeah. And I knew you were in photography, but I didn't know about like that far into it with race yeah. and stuff. That's yeah. Cool. No, I, uh, do you ever wish you would have pursued that like more? Or? Well, again, like the conservative side, I was, te- I was terrified. <laughs> this is the, the truth though. Cause like my, my sole interest in it was racing. Okay. Yeah. You know, like I didn't, the photography interest was built around going to the track and taking pictures at the races. Okay. So then my fear was, well, I don't want to take yearbook photos when I'm older. So like that, that squashed it. Okay. Yeah. Like I dude, it's bad. Like I need to take chances more in my life. It's, it sucks. I don't know how to do it, but see, I need to probably be, I have a little bit of you in me in terms of like being a little bit more conservative at times. Cause like with my career, it's, I'm just like, fuck it. Like I got to go take this chance and I just go do it. Yeah. And I'm glad I have that in me. And like, especially doing the podcasting, like, wanted to do it for a couple of years and it just didn't work out, didn't work out. And the start of this year <clears throat> when I wasn't doing anything, I told Karen, I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. What is it? What am I going to lose? Yeah, exactly. Time, I guess. I don't know, but fuck it. And here we are 26 episodes later. And it's like, I think it was like, uh, I don't know why, like f- feeling almost, uh, like you're committed to that. Like you picked it, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, if I chose to be a photographer, like that's it. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get anything else. Yeah. I don't know if that's obviously that's probably how my mind was working at the time. Like, yeah. okay, you decided to do this. Now you're committed. Mm-hmm. So if, if you don't have a job taking pictures at the races, you're going to have to take high school yearbook photos now. Like there's no yeah. alternative. There's no, nothing else you can do. That's so interesting. But I feel that truthfully, I feel that way sometimes now, like you get so deep into racing. Yeah. And like, okay, let's say tomorrow I was just over it, burn out. I'm done. Yeah. Well now what? Like I can't go do taxes. I don't want to go do taxes, but yeah. like, you know, where do you find your fit? Yeah. You know, in, in doing something. So I don't know. I just, I think too much about stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. No, I understand that. I think I've, for me, like, obviously like I have that passion for the sport like you do. And then the same with being behind a camera. So like able to combine those two for me, it was, uh, I have to make this work. There's no, like, there's no plan B. Yeah. And I like to an extent made that, uh, like made sure there wasn't a, a plan B. Cause so it's like, fuck, we're going to have to figure this out yeah. through thick or thin. And I've gone through the burnouts, went through it the last couple of years was fucking miserable. Yep. Uh, but I've learned through, I think like therapy and whatnot is like, it's all environment too. For me anyways, it's like, for sure you have to be around like-minded people and there has to be mutual respect for your time, your effort and like where you're trying to take this thing you're working on. Yeah. It could be very circumstantial for sure. Like, uh, 
yeah, for sure. Times where I've been at races and the thing that sucks, it, honestly, it does suck. Like you go somewhere for a long time, you know, like you're at Loretta's for 10, 12, whatever, you know, a long time, like being gone for the length of time can be wearing mentally more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I can get burnt out on that, but it flips, like I'll be home for two days and then I'm ready. I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in the moment and maybe it's going bad. Maybe your crew is being difficult. And like, just again, like the circumstantial environment mm-hmm. is like making it is uh, it's exaggerating the situation. Mm-hmm. So then you're like even more over it because it's not enjoyable or you're not having fun. Yeah. And it's not always going to be fun. No. Um, and I get that, but then it, it flips quick. Like, I guess I forget it quick. Mm. And then there's events that you go into and you kind of know, like, eh, it's like going to be a little bit um, mentally wearing just because there's business dealings going on that are stressful or, mm-hmm uncomfortable situations, circumstances, conversations, things like that. You're like, man, I really don't want to get on a plane and fly to this race and deal with this bullshit. Yeah. You know, like anybody's like that, that's human nature. Yeah. So that comes and goes, I think with anything, but then the good, the good is the good. Like the good is great. Mm -hmm. You know, like you go somewhere, you have a good race, like a great time. Like, even though it was local, like the LA SMX race, like was Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Like everyone was like, Mood was good. Mm-hmm. Place was cool. Our kid won the race. Like mm-hmm. everything was bitching. Yeah. Like, and like, like the, the love is at an all time high, mm-hmm. but then you could be, you know, on a plane to New Jersey and it's shit. And they're like, this fucking sucks. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. that's life. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it can't always be sunshine and rainbows. No. Cause if it was, I feel like then everyone would do it. Like yeah. you gotta, be able to see through the bullshit. That's too. I give credit to, I mean, guys like Mitch that for so long going to the races and just the amount of crap he's got to deal with, take the race team out of it. The guy runs a business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Unreal. I hope that, uh, one day he just writes a fucking tell all, tell all memoir <laughs> and just leaves it all out there. Yeah. There's, day. there's, can only imagine packed in stories there that's for sure yeah i can only imagine yep all right sir sweet that was like two and a half hours fuck yeah thank you no worries this is an outro i've had to record this multiple times because i keep fucking it up and i don't know what i'm supposed to say because i have discovered outros are weird and if you ever do a podcast and you have to do your own outro you will also discover that this is weird but here we are trying to make it less weird but probably making it more weird anyways uh thank you to everyone that listened to that episode and i really appreciate it hope every one of you enjoyed it and got some insight into and uh hmm yeah i'm not doing this again so we're gonna roll with that fumble um hmm i hope that you got some insight and perspective uh into the story you just heard from who was most definitely a rad individual um and like i said up front if you haven't already you can find us on apple podcasts 
Spotify, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, wherever you like to cast your pods, we're there. Uh, So give it a follow, subscribe, rate, review, comment, love it, or leave it. Uh, And find us on Instagram at underscore the field experiment, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all the social stuff, because influence and new episodes every monday morning 5 a.m pacific standard time 8 a.m eastern standard time every monday new episode uh so yeah hope to see you back again thank you to everyone that listened hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next week